Hello, my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis, a journey through the books for people who have made the journey before, brought to you by people who have made the journey many times. George R. R. Martin has said before and will say again, this series was designed to be reread. We're your tour guides on this journey, but even we doing this full-time can't catch everything. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. Also, feel free to submit questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets, such as Facebook, Flick, Discord, or Slack. You can find links to join those in the description of the video or the podcast, whichever you are partaking in. Also, check out the Isle of Faces. That's Joe Buckley's podcast. You can find his thoughts throughout each episode of Valerie Reredis. Ditto Nina Friel on Tumblr. She goes by Good Queen Alley with one L. And her thoughts are also throughout this episode and most other Valar Reredis episodes. Join us on Patreon. You can support us financially and get a variety of different benefits associated with different pledge levels. And that includes things like bonus episodes, access to our scripts and notes, and the occasional things like shout outs and private sessions, things like that. All right, this week we have the last episode of A Storm of Swords Chapters proper. Of course, as always, we will be doing a wrap-up episode with guests, and that is set for next week. This week, the last five chapters. Tyrion 11, really making Tyrion Lannister a murderer, a.k.a. the one where Tywin and Shay die. Sam 5, the gang meets Sam the player, a.k.a. the one where Stannis requires castles. John 12, just say no to Winterfell, a.k.a. the gang votes for snow. Sansa 7, slaying a giant in a castle of snow, a.k.a. the one with only cat. And epilogue, the day they hanged Merritt Frey, a.k.a. the gang meets Lady Stoneheart. What an episode for this to happen to fall on Mother's Day. I mean... We did not plan, I mean, we definitely, yeah, we planned it. Yeah, we totally, totally planned it. No, we had no idea. It was a complete coincidence, accident. It made me think of how there were two different seasons, season three and season four, where the finale happened to be on Mother's Day or happened to have a title like Misa, the children (laughs) that made us think Lady Stoneheart was coming. She never did, but, well, at least we get to revisit her book chapter today and more chapters of hers in A Feast for Crows and Beyond. Maybe it's not the deepest of themes to point to, but this is a run of chapters filled with some of the snappiest lines in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. We have Tywin's last moments and an inability to shit gold. Stannis absolutely reams Janna Slint. Mormont's Raven also gives a snappy comeback to Alistair Thorne, who also absolutely reams Janna Slint. That's the Raven, not Alistair Thorne. But then John's on the receiving end from Iron Emmett with, now I know how Corrin Halfhand must have felt. To be fair, Iron Emmett was on the receiving end of an unfair beating of the physical variety right after giving a fair beating to John. Next up is Only Cat, one of the most nasty zingers from a murder of all time. And it's followed by the Brotherhood Without Banners killing Merritt Frey with wordplay before they kill him with rope. In general, the final lines of these chapters are among some of the best in the series. George really took pains to make sure that last line was tight and pithy and fun. The song theme returns for what we can fittingly call an encore. 
in a few of the chapters anyway. Marillion will be singing as Lysa is killed and he himself incriminated for it. Jenny's song is the finale lead-in for Lady Stoneheart, while Merritt Frey gets The Day They Hanged Black Robin, and Tyrion thinks of Hands of Gold Are Always Cold Again as we start today with his chapter, Tyrion 11, really making Tyrion Lannister a murderer, a.k.a. the one where Tywin and Shay die. Of course, the title refers to the fact that they tried to make him a murderer at trial, and then afterwards, he really did become one. And of course, they told him, or he told them rather, that he wishes he was the monster they think he is. And this is where he begins to make good on that promise. I don't think it's a stretch to say this is one of the top five or, mo- or, or so most important single moments in A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, Tyrion, whether you're a big fan of Tyrion or not, he is pretty sure the character with the most chapters. It might be Arya, but Tyrion has more total length in his chapters. Yes, he doesn't have a lot of total length. Hey. But if we're just looking at the large scale of him in terms of how he's been such a huge character, and this is the biggest changing moment for him probably in all three books to this point. And of course, the death of Tywin coming with that, well, that's the guy who's ruled the continent for off and on for 20 years, roughly. And well, that's obviously going to cause some ripple effects. When you read this chapter the first time, assuming you read it before you saw it, or let's say you saw it first, did you think he'd shoot? Did you really think he was going to do it? I mean, Tywin didn't. <laughs> but I mean, I, I don't think I paused to think about it, to think, whoa, is he really going to do this? I just kept reading and what, you know. That's the case for me in a lot of situations when you ask questions like that. I'm like, yeah. I, I just read. I just kept going. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't look up from it. I couldn't take a moment to breathe or do anything. I just had to read. I think a lot of people are that way. I think that's usually how I am. But there definitely are people who like to, who stop and think about it. Yeah. And I'm curious what, what their reaction was. Yeah. yeah. And Shay as well was that maybe was harder to see coming because he's she's not he's not pointing a crossbow at her and he didn't have like an obvious murder weapon. Uh, so that may have been a different sort of surprise. And I suspect a lot of people were like, whoa, <laughs> when that happened, too. And then the lie to Jamie at the end. That's pretty surprising, too. We know for damn sure he didn't kill Joffrey. But so much unravels. It's the one this chapter where the last thread holding him to his family snaps And really, so does he. And the first line is, When he heard noises through the thick wooden door of his cell, Tyrion Lannister prepared to die. And that thread holding him to his family was Jaime. Even though it was a a lone, solitary thread, it was a strong thread, as evidenced in part by how Jaime has come to free Tyrion in the first place, while the rest of the family has done what it can to put or keep him in said prison in the first place. It's characteristic of Tyrion that even as he's preparing himself to die, he's making plans and trying to think about what the best possible options are for him. He's still planning even in his last moments. He's not really panicking. He's considering what to say. He wants to have like a nice last statement, something like that. It's interesting. He's He's not afraid. There's no cowardice. There's just kind of he's resigned and wants to make the most of it, even though there's not much that can be made of it until Jamie shows up. The perspective is huge in this chapter. It would look very, very different from Jamie's point of view. And we will at least get Jamie's point of view in part when we see him in A Feast for Crows again, although it won't be right away. 
We won't get to see Jamie's take on any of this until he begins his vigil for Tywin. We'll deal with his feelings on the matter since it dominates that chapter at the time. But we will at least look ahead to that chapter to get some details on the logistics of the escape, things like that. Much is suggested about Varys' intentions with regards to Tyrion and Tywin, and I think it's a worthy subject, but often overstated. I believe Varys adapted to a surprising situation expertly, as he often does, but otherwise would not have freed Tyrion. Jamie forced him to, keep that in mind. That's hugely important here. And though Varys may have guessed, he might have been like, I wonder if Jamie's going to come and, and try to make, you know, do something. But he couldn't have assumed it. And he certainly couldn't have counted on it. I mean, like any minute now, Jamie's going to come in here with a dagger and force me to open Tyrion's cell. It's just a matter of time. No, I don't think so. I think that's assuming too much. Now, yes, Varys absolutely does lead Tyrion to Tywin's room with almost hilariously precise directions, all while protesting. Like, now you do not want to go exactly 230 rungs up and then walk 60 feet, put your hand on the left wall. But you really don't want to do that. I mean, that's reverse psychology, I think, if you ask me. And I guess you did. But at this point, Varys is, is already screwed. This is a classic in for a penny, in for a pound situation. Tywin's death is cited on the outside as the reason Varys had to go into hiding, and that's not entirely wrong, but he would have had to go into hiding anyway simply due to Tyrion's escape. I mean, right when Tyrion walks in the room, then the privy, Tywin is like, Varys did this, didn't he? I'm going to have his head, blah, blah, blah. You know, and then he's like, mm. Tywin's like, Tyrion's like, uh, hold on a sec, dad. We've got other things to talk about. <laughs> so there's no way to free Tyrion without Varys getting blamed. That's the bottom line. Varys says as much to Jaime. He's like, look, if Tyrion gets out, there's no way this doesn't come back to me. Point being, once Varys knows he has to go into hiding, might as well make it as worthwhile as possible. What's a murder or two if you've already committed treason? Right? It's not, it's nothing. It's just... Going back to the buffet for more, you've already paid. <laughs> Varys surely overhears Tyrion and Jamie's conversation, their argument. Surely he overheard that, right? He had to have been listening in. I mean, this is Varys. And he realizes immediately Tyrion's state of mind. He knows Tyrion is out for blood over this Taisha confession and realizes that he can force a confrontation. Or at least once Tyrion says, hey, I want to go up there, Varys knows exactly what's going to happen. If Tywin dies, as it happens, then what a huge stroke. If Tywin Tyrion comes back out of that room alive, they can recruit him. If he doesn't, they meaning Team Varys, well, they haven't lost much, have they? Tyrion was already condemned, and his value to them is in part based on his claim to Casterly Rock, which is much weaker with Tywin alive and very, very strong with Tywin dead. Over the years, a gambling term I've used here and there in podcasts is the term free roll. It's something that's a bet you can win or not win, but you can't lose. Usually it's because you've risked something that has no value to you. It's precisely the case here because, well, break it down. What is Varus risking here exactly? His position on the council and his job of Master of Whispers and his safety would be the thing he's risking if those weren't already out the window based on Jamie forcing him to free Tyrion. So, the scene when Tywin points out that the king doesn't necessarily have the most power, he's obviously talking about himself as the one who does have the most power. So, you can see why if Varys only has this last little bit he can do, or at least encourage, well, it's a big little last thing to do as he's leaving. 
or at least help Tyrion do. <laughs> His death is gigantic on both an interpersonal and political level. He's been the most powerful person in Westeros for the entirety of the series. He was more powerful than Robert when Robert was king. He's certainly more powerful than Joffrey or Cersei. Or... And this is another point that lets it sink in, just how powerful Tywin was. Who is the most powerful person in Westeros now? I don't know. <laughs> it's a debatable point. There's plenty of people you could nominate and say, well, maybe it's this person, maybe it's this person. And that just goes to prove how powerful Tywin was because it is clear that it's him, but when he's gone, it's not. So he was way ahead of, you know, second most powerful, whoever that even is. His death is going to inspire men like John Connington to see Westeros as weak or at least weaker. It will embolden Stannis and the Dornish and the Ironborn, though many of them were already pretty bold, if we're being fair. But still, there's no doubt it's a boon for anyone except those closely allied to the Lannisters. It's not good for the Tyrells, for example. While it gives them more ability to, say, seize power from within, they can make more moves within their alliance. It weakens them on the outside because it makes them vulnerable to attacks from other factions who were wary of going up against the faction led by Tywin Lannister. Varys goes to work on this right away, leaving a coin unique to the Reach in his false jailer's quarters, leading Cersei and her level one thinking, a coin from the Reach must mean the Tyrells were involved in Tyrion's escape. But Varys knows that's the way she thinks, so it's a perfect little simple play for him. By extension, it's not just bad for the Tyrells, it's bad for the Freys and the Boltons and anyone else counting the throne as an ally. Anyone else who just sold their soul to cozy up to the Lannisters, so to speak, is hurting because they just married themselves to a sinking ship. Now, of course, the Lannisters aren't going to sink right away, but we can see how it starts to become a bit of a clown show. On the complete opposite spectrum would be a character with the least power. Well, if Tywin's the most powerful, who's the least powerful? That's not really truly possible to determine because, I mean, well, it was like some baby out there. Well, is that baby tied with other babies? Well, <laughs> are babies really more powerful than two-year-olds? <laughs> but, I thought you were saying is that baby tied to other babies. <laughs> they like rope together. Yeah. <laughs> but Shay is a pretty good example of someone who is an adult with almost no agency. Now, Tyrion knows she was coerced at every turn by Bronn in coming to Tyrion in the first place, by Tyrion throughout their relationship, especially by Cersei during the trial, by Tywin as well. I mean, she never went out of her way to harm or insult him. I wouldn't say she was really loyal to him either, but hey, she's not supposed to be. He was deeply insulted by the Giant of Lannister comment and strangled her for it. That's, that's going way too far. I mean... Insults are insults, and maybe that was a bad thing for her to say, but damn, that's not murder-worthy. Still, she wasn't actually trying to insult him. She wasn't rubbing it in his face. She was trying, she was desperate for some something to say that would, you know, keep him from doing something awful. Even if you take a dimmer view of Shay than I have here, I just can't see any argument even remotely approaching she deserves to die for this. It's just not, it doesn't even come close, I don't think. It's the epitome of one of Tyrion's worst qualities, one that he gets from both his father and from his ultra high position in society. Insults are mortal issues from, you know, you grow up in Tywin's family. <laughs> well, Tywin 
does takes them that seriously. So you can kind of see where he gets it from. But he's not. But Shay isn't like some sworn sword or anything. He never, she never promised him loyalty. She never took an oath. I mean, and think of her perspective here. She's just laying in bed there, and all of a sudden Tyrion just appears with his evil grin and his horrific scar, and just she knows that he's going to be wanting revenge. It's that's terrifying, right? <laughs> now let's jump forward to the final scene with Tywin where he says, you, you are no, no son of mine. Now that's where you're wrong, father. Why, I believe I'm you, writ small. Do me a kindness now and die quickly. I have a ship to catch. This is the ultimate point about their relationship. Tyrion is right. It doesn't matter whether you think Tyrion Targaryen is essentially canon or one of the worst theories ever or somewhere in between. Tyrion is a lot like his father, whether his father is his sire or not, Tywin raised him and he's like him. He is Tywin writ small, as he says. Nature, nurture, debate it all you want. The bottom line is clear. And I do like to debate it. But still, no matter how you debate it, we get the same answer, ultimately. It's obviously not a perfect comparison. I mean, one of the biggest issues with Tywin is his own fathering, and his own father was much different. So Tyrion's experience is different there. And clearly, Tyrion has no kids of his own for us to judge that. But particularly with lower class people, which is pretty much everyone else compared to the Lannisters, he doesn't respect other people's points of views all that much or appreciate their struggles. He's very bad at putting himself in their place. He tries. He's just not that good at it, especially when it comes to their agency or really their lack thereof, in part because he has so much agency and it's hard for him to perceive how different that is for other people. He sees how little he has compared to the rest of his family, and that's fair enough, but he's blind to how much advantage he has on just about everybody else. Now, this is the moment where he truly realizes it himself, though. It's like a Highlander moment. There can be only one, a Sith apprentice slaying his master to take his place. Now, I don't want to go too far with this. Tyrion's not evil, evil. He's had a lot of reason to feel hate and rage and anger and fear and pain. Emotions he specifically feels as he slaps Jamie when Jamie comes to rescue him and gives him the Taisha explanation. But all these things have turned him and he's embracing them. He's embracing rage and anger and fear and pain. It's, it is very Sith-like. I think he has treated Jamie with hypocrisy here. When he's asked about murdering Joffrey, well, I mean, I, I have some sympathy. Maybe Jamie could have handled that more tactfully. But even Tyrion himself realizes how bad the trial looked like from the outside. The evidence was damning. And Jamie's still here freeing him, any, you know, despite all that. But with regards to Taisha, is Jamie's actions in a nutshell or in a vacuum any worse than what Tyrion did? Arguably, what Tyrion did is worse. But you can see still why it's so very painful to Tyrion despite this equivocation. Now, Jamie, what I mean is that Jamie did not participate in this barracks rape of Taisha. Jamie says he was coerced into the plan about making Taisha what she was, about lying. But this is exactly what Tyrion says regarding the barracks, that his father forced him. I mean, it's a different lie, but it's still a similar lie. Tywin didn't try to convince Jamie that Taisha was a sex worker, but he lied that she was after his money, which is a, effectively the same thing for this situation, which is to 
undermine Taisha's love. This just the point is Tywin's saying, oh, there's no real love here. And so that teenage Jamie thinks, oh, then that must make it okay. Now we're not trying to absolve Jamie, but it's wrong for Tyrion to put all this on him. However, we still have, I still have a lot of sympathy here. I've got some great takes here written by both Nina and Joe that I want to share. They both capture it very strongly in a couple of different ways. What hurts Tyrion so much about the Taisha confession from Jamie? It's not so much that Jamie lied to him. It's that Jamie bought into Tywin's framing. Tyr- Tyrion has struggled all his life with the idea that no woman could ever love him, that any woman who slept with him would do so only because she was forced to or because of money or some combination of the two. So Tywin reinforced this idea back in Tyrion 3, A Storm of Swords, that, quote, if you think your whores want you in their bed, you are an even greater fool than I suspected. So he, he's, this is, that was him re-emphasizing this old lie from years ago. Tyrion has also been clear that the only family member he believes loves him is Jamie. Jamie has always been the one who would stand up for him and show him kindness. So it's painful for Tyrion in this moment to hear Jamie, the one Lannister he thought who cared for him, parroting Tywin's nonsense arguments, which are undermined immediately with the confession, because it can't be true that no one will ever love Tyrion if Tysha did love Tyrion genuinely. It's the lie undermines the deep truth that Tyrion has been bitterly living by all this time. He believed that he was unlovable in part because of this lie. I mean, can you fathom how angry this would make him? It's understandable thus that he takes some of that out on Jamie because it's just such a crushing, towering, lifelong reveal of a blow. And of course, the main anger gets taken out on Tywin. But what a reveal. It's, it's, it's a reframing of Tyrion's entire life. The reason for his life's pain. It's a lie. It never happened. And it's also abuse of Jamie by Tywin. That's part of why it's so tragic because they could have, could have maybe bonded over this moment, realized, wow, he really just did a number on both of us, didn't he? And again, I'm not blaming Tyrion because it's such an enraging thing to fig- find out when he's already at the end of his rope, end of his wits, whatever you want to call it, sitting down here in this cell with the world against him. And he hears that she was the same age as Sansa, which is just drives the knife in deeper because all his time with Sansa, he's, it, it was a reminder to him that no one will ever love him, that he's not good enough for a girl like this, that he's, she's constantly revolted by him. And that's a constant reminder to him that that's how everyone feels about him. It's really tough. I mean, for both of them too, but we're focused on Tyrion right now. And it's just as big a revelation for readers too. I mean, we may have been misled into thinking that too, which is kind of some, a soul-searching moment that we may have all believed Tywin, or not believed, but at least bought into that argument. The drinking, the dark humor, uh, the def- all these defense mechanisms, the brothels, the need for acceptance, all this, so much of this, need for love. It all stems from this Taisha incident. So much of everything we know about Tyrion as a person stems back to that event. And that event was false in so many ways. We've discussed these features of Tyrion for so, so long, all three books throughout so many chapters. 
We've talked about this weakness of him and where it's gotten him. Joe counted, there's about 35 of them we've gone through. (laughs) It's such an incredible emotional wound that is just hard to fathom. I mean, discovering that everything that went wrong in your life didn't need to, or at least didn't have to go quite so badly. He did have a genuine love of a woman. He just didn't know it. And what's worse, the lie about that came from the one person in the whole world that he thought would understand that and did love him too. What a betrayal. It's, as Joe says, it's abominable. We already knew Tyrion felt copious amounts of guilt over the barracks and Tysha's fate, as he should. But the feeling is increased now. He discovers she really did love him. He, the crime he committed against her is even worse because she was guilty of nothing. She was completely innocent. In fact, she was exactly what she said she was. And that just, oh man, Tyrion, you just realized even more what you've done. So he's got all this rage and frustration at himself and at Jamie and at his father and at everyone else, all these people all at once. How would someone process that? How would you begin to deal with that? Spitefully then, after the question about the murder, Tyrion lies. He throws out the lie about Joffrey's death and he brings up Cersei's infidelities, which is partly true. I mean, he throws in names that aren't (laughs) necessarily accurate, but Lancel certainly is. The Kettle Black's more more of a later thing. I don't think that's actually happened to this point. But yeah, we'll call it, you know, Tyrion predicted it accurately. (laughs) And when Jaime asked also, it's, there's, there's another interesting little bit of comparison here because Tyrion brings up Ares kind of in a way to reunite the brothers in their king slaying. But also because the question hurts so much, that's part of why he brings it, throws it back in Jamie's face. To ask that question is to suggest that Jamie doesn't trust Tyrion's declaration of innocence. He doesn't believe that Tyrion wouldn't try to hurt his son. I mean... That's an unspoken thing here. Well, until Tyrion says, yes, I killed your vile son. (laughs) It was somewhat unspoken that Joffrey was Jaime's son. But that does make it a bigger crime on Tyrion's side. If Tyrion kills Joffrey, that he's killed Jaime's son as well as Cersei's son. And well, killing Cersei's son is one thing, but Jaime and Tyrion had a good relationship, had a good relationship. And Tyrion's also trying to emphasize what else Jaime's guilty of. Jamie knows about the assassination of Bran, the attempt on him, and Tyrion brings that up. Jamie mentions, yeah, I thought that was the case. And Tyrion seems to know that Jamie about the Bran thing, about pushing Bran out the window. And he uses this point to prove that Joffrey would have killed him eventually too, because Joffrey is so aggressive and violent towards weakness. That was part of why he killed Bran, or tried to kill Bran. And so he has a strong point that, yeah, Joffrey's just going to kill me one day. And that never did motivate Tyrion that much in terms of, well, he wasn't going to try to kill Joffrey over it. He was just going to try to deal with it. But it works really well here as an argument. Now, after all that, I do still believe Tyrion deserves sympathy. I mean, this is a difficult... He's not wrong to feel an outcast when it comes to love, both familial and romantic. I sympathize there. It weighs heavily. But in, as far as Shea goes here, there's just no getting around this one. He's essentially at, angry at the world and his family for finding him unattractive and for all the treatment, harsh treatment he's had because of that. And he's taking it out on Shea in that moment. That's, yeah, she's not, she's not to blame for that. I mean, hmm. 
That's murder. His father, though, he committed an act of pure evil against his own son that scarred that son for life. No matter what level of guilt we put on Tyrion himself, there's a ton of guilt for Tywin. I don't condemn Tyrion for killing his father here, though many will, many in Westeros will, but they had already condemned Tyrion. It's the same in for a penny, in for a pound thing. They already think he's a kinslayer and kingslayer. Everyone already thinks he killed Joffrey. Killing Tywin is another free roll. <laughs> Just why not? What a story this is to outsiders, though. He shows up to Daenerys or the Golden Company or the Second Sons or whoever, and he's like, yeah, I killed Joffrey. They, I killed Tywin. You know, I killed all those people. <laughs> I'm going to kill Cersei, too. I'm going to kill them all. His reputation outside Westeros? Like, how did he do this? How does this little man lose his trial, lose his trial by combat, yet escape prison just after it to kill the most powerful man in Westeros and kill his former lover on the way out the door as well. Like, how the hell did he do that? <laughs> like, we know. But from the outside, it's crazy. Like, what the hell? How did he do that? <laughs> Obviously, uh, in the Bravosi play, they were also wondering. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, we're going to see that with Arya. We see it. Obviously, we see it in the show, but we do see it in the books. But I don't know if we're really getting into the Winds chapters here. So we'll move along. We are. We are. We are all, okay. spoiler, all spoilers are fair here. But yeah, you're right. That is where we will get to revisit that somewhat with the Mercy chapter and even some other things. But yeah, like how? Like from the outside, man, what did Tyrion do? How the hell did he do that? <laughs> they must think he's got some magic or something. I mean, geez. Now, I'm not fully sold on Tyrion looking at Westeros as his own Reigns of Castamere situation. I, I think he might. I think George Arles has also placed some elements in his future story that could take him there, but also could take him the opposite way. I don't know if he'll become decent, but at least back away from the edge. And maybe he'll become decent. I don't know. On the other hand, he's slipping in other ways. I mean, speaking of T-Wow chapters, he, he thinks back on Shay and wonders if perhaps she was a mummer all along in one moment. And then another moment, he thinks she didn't deserve to die, but that he does. And then another, in the same chapter, a few paragraphs later, his rage is so dark and complete that he might, he thinks that if he was holding a weapon in that moment, he might've killed Penny. I mean, that's how down in the depths he is. I mean, Penny's far more innocent than Shay, and Shay is pretty darn innocent, in my opinion. But Penny, she hasn't done anything except, well, we'll get there. That's to explore as we go forward. 12 more chapters in A Dance with Dragons for him and one pre-release from The Winds of Winter with perhaps possibly some notes from another. So we got a lot more to go with Tyrion to explore these themes with a fresh set of eyes and with, you know, TV show and other things in mind. Although I don't think the TV's going to help us a whole lot with, uh, with book Tyrion. We also end the book with an act of revenge for the greatest crime in the series so far. It's, of course, the Red Wedding. All that planning and all that sense of victory, that grand scheming for Tywin's legacy. What did it get him? A few months of victory, a few months of giving orders for the future that he's never going to see. His legacy is going to fall apart really quickly. I mean, this is a guy that was dominant while alive, but after his death, it's going to be a, like he's been gone for a while. It's Things are going to change so quickly. So many people have already talked about like the difference between Eddard and Tywin. People keep fighting for Eddard's values and for Eddard's love and for things that he believed in after his death. But as soon as Tywin's gone, people are like, finally, that guy's gone. Whew. Or they're like, what are we going to do now? The people who are depending on him. And here's another quote 
from the end of the book that's going to be built on when we get to the Feast for Crows and Jamie's chapters and, and Tywin's funeral and all that. But the stink that filled the privy gave ample evidence that the oft-repeated jape about his father was just another lie. Lord Tywin Lannister did not, in the end, shit gold. So yeah, everything about Tywin was kind of rotten and stinky. And that's something George goes really far with in terms of symbolism with his corpse to the point where it adds to the theories about maybe he was being poisoned. And so does the fact that he was stuck constipated here because we've seen drugs that do that. I mean, Tyrion did give the exact same drug to Cersei in A Clash with Kings, Clash of Kings. So yeah. It's interesting that also in his final moment, we talked about how Tywin is pretty good at reading people, reading what his enemies will do, understanding their motives and how they'll behave. We, you know, he famously got it wrong with Rob and he famously gets it wrong here. He says Tyrion does not have the courage to shoot him with the crossbow. And I don't know if he's just, if it's just talk or if he legitimately believes Tyrion won't shoot him, but I'm pretty sure he legitimately thought Tyrion would never shoot him. And well, Tywin, uh, uh, Tyrion was quite, done with Tywin doubting him. And that's almost funny, more of an ironic funny than a ha-ha funny, that this is proof. The fact that he pulled the trigger there is some of the best proof Tyrion could ever give Tywin that, yeah, I am like you. You too, if you were pushed into the situation where it was, oh, they're going to think I'm a coward if I don't pull this trigger, I said I would pull this trigger. I promised to pull this trigger if you said that word again. And well, better me be a murderer than you think I'm not capable of coming through with my threat. That is so Tywin-esque. And in his final moment, he gets it proven. Now let's talk about the tunnels. This is, this is interesting. The tunnels below the castle are definitely going to continue to play a role. Tyrion escapes via the sewers like Arya did, although he was led and she just kind of stumbled her way there. This is maybe how Varys gets back in the castle when he leaves uh, because he obviously he comes back or at least lurks in the tunnels for two straight books. When he comes to murder Pycelle and Kevin, well, he's emerged from these same tunnels. Even though Cersei's going to eventually collapse the Tower of the Hand, well, that's just part. That's not the tunnel system itself. That's just perhaps this one access ladder that Tyrion used. That's probably gone. Well, that's definitely gone. But little else is going to have changed about the tunnels below. Nina wonders if Blood and Cheese, the ones who murdered young uh, Jaehaerys, Aegon II's son, in front of his own mother and other brother and sister, they may have used the same ladder that Tyrion climbed to kill Tywin because there's a level below the Hand's Tower that is supposedly where Alison Hightower's rooms were. Here's another clue about Arya. Remember how I've been saying there's, there's, I have this idea that Arya will return through the tunnels and maybe kill somebody? Well, one person I never really considered that she would come to kill would be Tyrion himself. Perhaps after, if Daenerys recaptures the Red Keep, it's, if it's not destroyed, or, and we don't have to have the Red Keep, perhaps she could just come for him. Anyway, the quote is right here. Another name? Oh, certainly. And when the faceless men come to kill me, I'll say, no, you have the wrong man. I'm a different dwarf with a hideous facial scar. And of course, this is a bit sad in the side of our, this, you know, apart from this theory that is just a theory and just an idea. We know for sure that Cersei will 
put out a all points bulletin on any dwarf and a lot of people are going to just bring dwarf heads to Cersei and say, look, we killed this dwarf. Is it Tyrion? Or, hey, we killed this dwarf. It's Tyrion. And she's not going to tell them to stop because she doesn't want to discourage other people killing dwarfs that might be Tyrion. She's basically put all the dwarfs in the world on a, on a hit list because of just Tyrion, which kind of justifies that she deserves to be killed. But there's plenty of reasons for that beyond this one. Varus describes the dungeons here, in particular the torture level, which is surprisingly easy to miss amongst all the other massive things happening in this chapter. So I pulled the quote here for you. Once a man is taken down to the fourth level, he never sees the sun again, nor hears a human voice, nor breathes a breath free of agonizing pain. Magor had the cells on the fourth level built for torment. They had reached the bottom of the steps. An unlighted door opened before them. This is the fourth level. Give me your hand, my lord. It is safer to walk in darkness here. There are things you would not wish to see. What a line. It is safer to walk in darkness here. It's out of context. That's like, hmm. And it is kind of where he's headed. But I wonder what is what what is it there that he doesn't want to see? Is it just torture devices? Because that doesn't seem that bad. I mean, Tyrion wouldn't mind seeing that. So I wonder what else there is down there. Uh, something that Varys doesn't want Tyrion to see. Passages, stuff. I, it's hard to imagine what it is that Tyrion would be so wary of. It doesn't seem even Kyburn does his work on this fourth level, though. He may not even have learned of this place. He seems to have only used the black cells for torment and experimentations, which is level three. And of course, this is level four. So, and Tyrion himself hadn't heard of this area. So it's entirely possible Kyber won't either. So Tyrion and Jamie haven't had a scene together since Tyrion's first chapter in A Game of Thrones, but this is, it doesn't really feel like a lot has changed between them here. They, they get along very easily and quickly at first. You know, they, have, they match each other in sarcasm and humor. They laugh about their horrible maimings. It's tragic because it seems like they would be, it would be nice to see them have some scenes together, joke together, and just, you know, they would, they would have some good banter, but it just falls apart so quickly. And they, this reconnection is, is over hardly before it begins. Jamie's voice sounds strangely solemn when he says he's come to rescue Tyrion. And Nina wonders if that's perhaps because he still feels guilty over Taisha. I mean, he thinks of the Taisha situation many, many times throughout his chapter without leading the reader directly into knowing that that's what he's thinking about. He thinks of bits and pieces of it. This is why rereading again is so important because on a reread, you catch just how much Jamie was thinking about Taisha and Tyrion too, because Tyrion thinks about Taisha quite a lot before the full story is laid out. It's bits and pieces from both of them over this issue. So once it comes all into play, fully into the picture, it's gigantic. So maybe Jamie is thinking here that this is his chance to make up for what he did. He doesn't realize that it's actually going to make things way, way worse because he doesn't fully understand what the situation means to Tyrion. He doesn't understand the part about Tyrion feeling unloved and how much this validates or doesn't validate that concept and how he's lived a lie. And it's funny in another not so funny way. Remember, we brought up the faceless man bit. It's not just the relationship with Penny that develops and partly because of this, but Penny's brother is killed because of those orders about let's hunt down all the dwarfs. And as another little bit of synchronicity, when Jamie just 
after all this fallout and they discover Tywin's body, Jamie's going to wonder since Varys has disappeared, if Tyrion didn't kill Varys, he's like, did Tyrion kill Varys somewhere down in these tunnels? I don't know. While during this chapter, Tyrion is wondering, is Varys going to kill me down in these tunnels? <laughs> so they kind of both, it kind of goes both ways. Interestingly, and I agree with this point, Nina suggests Tywin was telling the truth about sending Tyrion to the wall. The argument being, that it's still a Lannister thing. It's still something that Tywin doesn't want the spectacle of a public execution of a Lannister. He doesn't want people talking about it. He doesn't want these kind of conversations and gossip going on. Sending him to the wall quietly is much more preferable because one, it's not a public execution. It's not a arguably kinslaying. There's no talk about that. I don't think Tywin's too worried about that, but it does at least avoid that kind of talk. But most importantly, it's the spectacle that's avoided, I think. Nina says, Tyrion explicitly knows about Bran and Jaime. Cersei confirmed it. That's right. That's true. You're right. I, I think I wasn't firm in s suggesting that he knows. Yeah, that's what it was. Then we got a series of questions, uh, really a discussion among the chat here I wanted to share, um, starting off from Natalie Smith, who says, Shay was doing her job. Tyrion was very clear about what was required of her as an employee of Tyrion. Then he couldn't employ her anymore. Hmm, and uh, Sylvia uh, Sebrix replied with, I, I do not agree with your take on Shay. Shay also would have Tyrion believe that she loved him. Next, she betrays him in the courtroom for money, then swaps him for his father, mm -hmm. to which uh, Lady Leaf Underhill said, I don't think she betrayed him just for money. She would have been tortured to death and he would have still been convicted. That's kind of where I fall. Yeah, sir. It makes it sound, sir, she makes it seem like and Tyrion agrees with it. Tyrion doesn't doubt it that Cersei was threatening her vi with violence if she didn't say exactly what she wanted to say her, her to say on the stand. And I don't know that Shay's testimony was damning because everyone was against him. But I don't just you know Sylvia is entitled to her opinion and you know promises are promises whether they were made under uh, if they're forced or not. That's an issue that Jamie brings up a lot. And Jamie decides to go through with a lot of his promises even though they were forced. So it's a, it's a matter of how seriously you take promises and, and whether they're, you know, what, what these promises mean. Jamie has more of, you know, the power to be able to keep his promises. I agree. I agree. It's, it's harder for Shay. She is at, at, has far, far less agency than Jamie. Kevin Moritz says, I love the way John Conn phrases it like, oh, I can't remember the specifics, but something along the lines of stinking drunk somewhere planning his latest infamy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Something about, yeah, Tyrion. He just, he, John Con also not a big fan of Tyrion, is he? He really doesn't like him. And it's funny because John Connington is, is kind of is, is, is clear sighted about Tyrion, whereas a lot of other people aren't. <laughs> Although it's not quite that simple, but John Connington is not very likable, but <laughs> he's, he's smarter about Tyrion than most people. Our, there were so many people on our Flick channel saying, damn you, Tywin. <laughs> Tree Girl points out that Jamie seems to care more about Cersei cheating on him than the killing of his son. <laughs> that's Which is, I do believe that's accurate, that he doesn't really think about Joffrey's death as, as that big a deal. I mean, it, it's a deal. It's not like something he just brushes off. But Cersei cheating on him is that's the thing that just really gets him wrapped up and spinning. And I think that J Tyrion knows what he's doing when he says that. He knows it's going to drive a knife into Jaime and make him think about it a lot. He knows his brother well enough to know how to get him thinking. Throughout our social media 
platforms, Facebook, Flick, Discord, Slack, nobody really thinks that Jamie and Tyrion have a great chance to patch it up again. Some people out there think there's a chance, but if I'm taking the general opinion and averaging it together of what people are suggesting or people are predicting, it doesn't look great, but we'll see. We'll see. Interestingly, the concept of sharp lesson comes up here one last time. Sharp lesson is what Tywin said he needed to give Tyrion when the Taisha incident happened. And well, Tywin had said that Joffrey needs a sharp lesson too. And well, maybe he was going to plan one for Tommen, who knows, but those sharp lessons are no good. But there, there shan't be any more coming from Tywin. Let us move on. Samwell 5, the gang meets Sam the player, aka the one where Stannis requires castles. Red Stannis needs castles. After such a heavy resolution to a fatherhood arc, Sam's dad issues don't look quite so bad, but, but give it time. For now, he's operating outside the shadow of his father with bravery and rational judgment and cleverness. You love to see it. But there's still powerful people throwing their weight around. Quote, The king was angry. Yeah. And you don't love to see Stannis praise Randall Tarley, Sam's dad. He's like, that's an able soldier. Mm, yeah. Our Discord channel brought up the concept of how rough Stannis would be if he had a son. I mean, not it wouldn't necessarily change Stannis the person, but he would be hard on that son. He would be harsh and unforgiving. And Stannis is a guy who doesn't really understand weakness or forgive it. So he would really push that kid hard, I think. And maybe it's a good thing that didn't happen. The lack of a choosing here. This is the main thing, though, that Stannis is upset about. But this isn't Stannis's ambition. He's trying to prepare the Norse for the others, and he needs them to get their act together so they can start planning. Changes are required. These changes are rather stunning. Stannis immediately tells the gathered brothers he wants their excess castles, which is a lot of castles. John will soon start occupying a few more of them, but there are 16 empty at the time of this particular asking. He also wants the gift. He wants the gift to be gifted. He's evasive why he wants it. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> the reason he doesn't tell them why he doesn't, he says, well, I, he's like, I'm going to use it better than you will. <laughs> that's, not, that's not an answer. It's he's going to give it to free folk. And the Night's Watch would not be happy. He's like, I'm going to give your land to wildlings. I mean, yeah, you can see why he's keeping that part <laughs> to himself. So he, they're going to hate that. <laughs> they're already unhappy at Stannis for other things. And well, that is worse. But then it becomes a much bigger ask and a very interesting note in the pursuit of understanding the prophecies. It begins with Maester Aemon asking a question. Is it the war for the dawn you speak of, my lady? But where is the prince that was promised? He stands before you, Melisandre declared, though you do not have the eyes to see. Stannis Baratheon is Azor Ahai come again, the warrior of fire. In him, the prophecies are fulfilled. The red comet blazed across the sky to herald his coming, and he bears Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes. Her words seemed to make the king desperately uncomfortable, Sam saw. Mm, yes. I would be too. Yeah, like being told you're the savior of the world, but not all the details line up. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> very clearly though, importantly, Azor Ahai and the prince that was promised are noted to be the same person by Melisandre. And maybe you could say Melisandre's track record is questionable. Well, you can definitely say that. Uh, but Aemon doesn't 
object to associating them as the same figure. So hmm, he's more concerned about lack of heat from the sword. This is probably a lead up to us learning that Stannis' Lightbringer is a mere glamour. Well, I guess we kind of already knew that. And maybe we shouldn't call it a mere glamour because it's a very impressive glamour. Still, it's been quite a while since we've had a lot any real talk about fake Lightbringer. So let's think all the way back to Davos 1 in The Clash of Kings when Stannis first claimed Lightbringer was what it is. We had a deep discussion back then about how that ceremony was not too great because there were things wrong with it. Some things didn't seem to line up. Davos had his doubts. It just didn't feel right for a lot of reasons. And now Maester Aemon's kind of reminding us of all those doubts, bringing them back around again. Very similar set of doubts, but with a lot more knowledge of the occult and prophecy. Maester Aemon's quite a bit more educated than Davos in general, but on this topic as well. And while it looks the part of Lightbringer, I mean, Sam is glowing in his praise for it. It doesn't feel right for a lot of other reasons. And Aemon is perfectly placed to tell us about it. Great comment by Archmaster Emma on our Flick channel. She points out that it's a good time for us to take a look at the difference in flaming swords. Beric's sword, to light it, he actually has to cut his hand, use real blood. Sure, he's dead, but still, the point is, it's like a miniature real blood sacrifice. Whereas this is fake light. There's no blood at all used here. It's just pure sorcery. Amon brings up the prophecy of the prince that was promised, and of course, he knows a lot about it. At least some details. We know that he discussed it with Rhaegar. They had correspondence. He's going to bring it up in A Feast for Crows, some of this correspondence and some of these things that Rhaegar believed. It's a pretty big deal. And more so than that, he was on the wall at the same time as Bloodraven. I mean, they arrived on the same ship, <laughs> Aemon and Bloodraven. And Bloodraven was obviously very deep into prophecy. He was very close to the two different kings, one of whom was the bookish king Ares I, who was very big in prophecy. You can draw a line from Ares I to Bloodraven to Maester Aemon to Rhaegar and see how all these things connect. Ares I discovered a prophecy of the dragons being reborn again, or rather rediscovered a prophecy of the dragons being reborn again. Quite possibly, this is the same text that Rhaegar discovered that led him to believe, it seems I must be a warrior in all this business, or at least got him on that same general track towards these prophecies. If it's not that same exact document, it's probably a related document. We talked about this. I think it's worth mentioning our Summerhall series. You're right. Which does talk a bit Quite about a this. Quite a bit. Yeah. Aemon doesn't bring up now, or in A Feast for Crows, the Ghost of High Hearth prophecy, which he should know about that too because of Rhaegar. And well, just in general, it, it's not like that big of a secret amongst the Targaryens. And the thing is, the Ghost of High Hearth prophecy said it had to be the line of Ares and Rhaella that would produce the prince that was promised. That, does, that rules out Stannis, but it does not rule out Daenerys nor Jon Snow. It would be interesting to know how much communication happened between Aemon and Rhaegar. We, we know there's some communication, but specifics? Are there going to be any documents, maybe? I mean, obviously, Aemon can't tell us now, but maybe if Sam goes back to the wall, he, he looks, roots around in some papers. I don't know. It seems like a thin hope at this point, but there's always a chance we get, a, get something somehow. One of the many steps that Stannis has taken here that I think is, hey, not so bad, Forcing the brothers to build night fires every night. Being ordered to build more fires as winter is coming. Yeah, that doesn't sound so bad. 
Stannis is having Obsidian mind on Dragonstone. That's definitely great, though he's lost his navy. He lost Sal- he's lost Salador's son in between now and then. So I'm kind of doubtful that any of that ever got shipped north. However, it should just be sitting there, mined, you know, in piles or, <laughs> or in, sitting there in containers. I don't know how they store it, but there's no reason for it to be destroyed. Stannis mentions here in this chapter he won't hold Dragonstone for much longer, and as at the end of the books where we're at now, he does not have it anymore. It seems that Loras Tyrell and his forces have taken it, although it looks like Loras got badly injured doing it, if the stories are true. Neither of them, meaning Stannis nor the throne, Cersei, are going to know or even guess that Dragonstone's a great place for Daenerys to land when she, when she returns. And then if all this dragon glass is just there waiting for her, well, she's going to have a head start on being a savior. She's going to be well-armed and be the person that brings this dragon glass north. One of the more glaring downsides to Stannis' coming to the rescue is the fear of people being burned alive. I mean, not just free folk, innocent people. It's just like, you know, whenever Stannis is around, you got to be wary of human immolation. I mean, the idea that Maester Aemon could be burned at all, that's kind of crazy when you think about it. It's like, why is the Maester of the Wall in danger from being burned by the king who came to rescue the Wall? But here we are. It is a legitimate fear. He was going to do that with Edric. Remember, he didn't, Davos didn't talk him out of burning Edric. He talked him into going north after he removed Edric from his presence. You know, it's funny, by the way, because that is how the Targaryens want to be burned. Yeah, right. (laughs) And because that's what you should do at the wall if you die. Either way, if you die, you should be burned. She's right. (laughs) And of course, this is all groundwork for Shireen, probably. But it is sure interesting that with Davos gone, other people are picking up the slack with the, well, let's keep Stannis from burning people. He's got this really weird <laughs> downside. He's so good in so many ways, but man, he's just so quick to, uh. and this chapter gets us even closer to the dark side of Stannis. His declaration to Sam that he wants to take the night fort as his seat. I mean, vibes, dark, dark vibes. I mean, it's awesome though. I mean, it's so cool. I'm not, this isn't criticism so much as ominous, right? But ominous can be really fun. Stannis at the Night Fort. I mean, Stannis at the at Dragonstone was really cool, but this is kind of like a parallel, right? Dragonstone is, is not nearly as old, but it's this volcanic locale with lots of eight mystery and sorcery may have used to build it. Night Fort, Kind of the same, but older and more ice-oriented and children of the forest, others' magic rather than R'hllor and and Valyrian magic. But what a change of location for him. Sad sad to say, uh, when that time comes, when we go to the Nightfort, if we ever get it, and I think we will, because damn, that would be... We got to have Stannis at the Nightfort. I mean, it's just so much potential, right? But there's some downsides to it. Melisandre probably burns that weirwood tree that's growing in the kitchen or at least cuts it down. That's a shame. But what about when she realizes that Stannis is not actually Azor Ahai? When's that going to happen? Is, is that going to happen at the Night Ford? Is that going to happen later? Is it going to happen because he dies? Is it going to happen? I don't know. It's, it's, I don't think it's going to happen like the show. So we have a wide open series of guesses here. And she's going to got to figure out that he's not the prince that was promised. And uh, this, things are going to happen. Side note, Stannis wants Sam to show him the Black Gate when the time comes. Well, will that time come? 
<laughs> well, again, I don't know. Sam's all the way down at Old Town now. So, and Stannis is snowed in at a crofter's village. So mm, it may not happen, but I really, really want to see Stannis at the night for it. So I hope so. Another important line here, Melisandre calls Stannis, quote, the warrior of fire, which seems to fit him less well than it fits either Daenerys, who literally stepped in the fire and is, you know, armed with dragons, or Jon, who it may have fire in him to be resurrected by R'hllor. Last time and the time before, I believe we talked about how the mechanism of R'hllor, the resurrection, is fire filling his heart and soul and lungs and all that. So it's very fiery. You know, he's a warrior of fire, but I think most people in Westeros should be a warrior of fire. <laughs> yes, be worried about fire. Stannis may not be a warrior fire or may not be fire himself, but he drops fire on Janos Slint. For someone who doesn't technically manipulate the election, he sure does manipulate the election. He absolutely destroys Slint in front of everybody, in front of all the voters, basically saying, not only saying he's unfit to lead, saying he's someone who took bribes, saying he's a worse, you know, a worse leader than the cook, and that had Stannis had his way, He'd have executed him. <laughs> it's like, man, you want my support? I would have executed you. <laughs> so it's just like the total reversal of what Slint and Thorne wanted. He drops this hint, too, that takes us all the way back to the betrayal of Ned. Littlefinger had a nose for gold, and I'm certain he arranged matters so the crown profited as much from your corruption as you did yourself. True. True. Where's the lie? It's it nailed it, Stannis. Sh shows an even deeper tie between the two of them. Ba Baelish made it seem like to Ned, he's like, I'm the one who pays them, so I can probably get them on my side. Whereas it seems like they had a regular working relationship that Baelish maybe didn't have control over the gold cloaks, but he kind of already had them in his pocket. And this kind of backs that idea up. I love that George set up an Ironborn and a Malister as the two leading candidates from the other two castles here, Malisters are, their existence is devoted to defeating Ironborn. <laughs> I mean, their castle is called Seaguard that's positioned in a point of land that comes close to the Iron Islands, as close as that sea is. In a lot of ways, Malisters are born into a life that bears some resemblance to life on the wall. It's a place built as a defense against a specific and dangerous foe. And that's kind of what Dennis Malister has been his whole life, right? Pretty cool. I smile at the way this scene is written because he's such a great mix, Dennis Malister, that is, of clueless snootiness and warm politeness. And he's not an idiot by any means. Neither is Cotter Pike. They're just so very opposite and intentional caricatures of those extremes. You know, the stereotypical versions of people who have their type of upbringing cultural and class contexts are all over the place here. And it's, it's really cool. I, I like it a lot. It's, it's a small thing, but it's really well done. Joe says this, a similar thing. He says he finds these two, these scenes incredibly funny. The way these two men are dead on about each other is brilliant because they're both right. Cotter Pike claims Dennis is more interested in telling stories about long forgotten tourneys. And when Dennis show, when he's talking to Sam, he brings up long forgotten tourneys. <laughs> he says, I beat your father in tourney, Sam, you know? And then he mentions other people. He's like, yeah. It's like, that was like 50 years ago, man. And Dennis is right about Cotter being too obtuse and being more concerned with getting a one-up on Stannis than the larger picture. So there's a lot of stereotyping on both sides. Malisters do this, Ironborn do that. 
Dennis probably does more of the stereotyping, but whatever, they're, they do both. Joe has a great point here. They're kind of the same person born into very different circumstances. Both of them make similar assumptions from different starting points. They both think Eamon has sent Sam because they both think they're the best candidate and they both think that the maester is taking their side. They both just assume this. Both of them also are very keen on the clarity they see with the problems of the other. Because again, Malisters know Ironborn very well and Ironborn know Malisters very well. So they're extremely keyed in on the flaws of their opposite. Now, of course, neither of them admit they want the job. They both think that they need it in part because they don't, they really don't want the other guy to get it. And meanwhile, a lot of other people are having the same issue on a different axis, whereas they really don't want Janos Slint to be elected when Stannis is one of them. Thanks, thankfully for the anti-Janos faction, Stannis Baratheon is on their side. So this is, but in the end of, with this back and forth between Pike and Malister, they're stubborn and their prejudices probably go a little too far. And that's what Sam exposes about them. He, it's brilliant. He hears these prejudices from them and plays them off perfectly by highlighting those prejudices that apply to John in a good way or a bad way, depending on which of them he's talking to at the time. It's so cool. <laughs> and it's, it's extra cool because it's Sam doing it. Yeah. Upbringing versus scrappiness. It's a great set of questions on what makes a good leader. What are the ideal traits needed for the upcoming conflict? You need both, I think. This, this chapter indeed makes this case wonderfully that this election is brings them out. The election is a, a chance for different candidates to point out what type of leadership is needed. And for us to realize all those things are needed. The things Malister is saying are needed, he's right. The things Piker is saying are needed, is he's right too. They're just a little narrow in that both of them need to take more of these things into account. Both These two lists need to be combined, or these three or four lists all need to be combined. All these leadership qualities are necessary, and that's part of why John is so perfect. It's a fun and clever way to show that John's opposing natures can be a strength. The watch, it's really easy for us to think of it as this big monolithic organization, but it's got vast cultural diversity within it because people come from all over the realm. Malister and Piker. A perfect example. I mean, they don't actually come from realms that are that far apart geographically. They're right next to each other, but they're culturally vastly different because of that opposition. But you've got Dornishmen, you've got Tyrashi, you've got Dormlanders. I think that's pretty cool. So John, by having traits that appeal to a wide variety of groups, makes him an excellent choice as leader beyond his actual leadership traits, which are quite strong too but he's got personal cultural traits that a lot of people can look at and say, I've got that in common with him. Younger men can say, you know, he's young like me. Nobles can say he's noble like them. Bastards can say he's a bastard like them, etc. Uh, he's worked hard. He's worked with the Rangers. He's fought. He's bled for the watch. There's just so many qualities you can point to. So Sam does such a good job telling people what they want to hear that it's another reminder or comparison, rather, to Sansa. Sansa's learning this trait, too, and we know she's going to continue to use that, but I don't know that we've put as much thought into that with regards to Sam. He's going to maybe pull some strings down at the Citadel, maybe manipulate some archmaesters, maybe 
establish some factions or play factions off of each other. Instead of Sam the, the Slayer, we've got Sam the Sneaker. <laughs> Sam the Sneaker, Sam the Player, all those things. That's right. He's developing into lots of different personalities. And I think that it's really unlikely that these new skills that Sam is showing off here are a one-time thing, right? This has got to be something we see again. We may even see another choosing. I'm you know sorry. what it made me think of? What's that? The uh, election, Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. The eventual election of a king. True, a great council. Exactly, you're right. That's a very good point. They may they may come down to a great council and you wonder, will Sam be uh, manipulating things in that case? Is he going to maybe be doing some of the same things? Is he going to be pitching for John? He pitched for John as Lord Commander and he, in the show, he didn't want to pitch for Danny for reasons that, uh, well, are pretty straightforward if you've if seen pitch, the show. If he pitches for Bran, he's already met him. Yeah, exactly. So, it's it's interesting how this is being set up very far in advance for other more large-scale uh, elections or vote gatherings or what have you. Regardless, I love Sam's thought process, whatever whether, whether it comes back up again or not. He uses cold, hard logic to bolster his sometimes fragile emotional state. He's scared of trying to manipulate the election until he rationally thinks through the consequences. And that really takes some of the sting, some of the fear away he can trust his, his intellectual process. He can think. He's like, I didn't leave anything out. I'm smart enough to have thought this through. Not only are these consequences very little, but he's faced far worse. He's been beyond the wall. He's faced others. He's dealt with cold hands. He's dealt with mutinous brothers. He's, he saw Small Paul's face eaten by a raven. That's the one he particularly thinks of in the scene. So what is he going to do? I mean, what's he? He's got to worry about being Cotter Pike being rude to him. He's got to worry about Malister being classist. I mean, this is nothing compared to that. So when Sam thinks it through, he's like, what the hell was I scared of in the first place? It's a, I love that because using rational thought to dispel fear is a path for Sam to, to flourish a lot more. And it's a real thing in the real world that a lot of people can fall back on. If you're somebody that maybe has too much fear in their life, sometimes rationalizing can help with that. It's a weapon to fight against fear. And it's interesting how these prejudices with these two other electors work against themselves. Malister is just too polite and classist to suspect that Sam is working him over. He's like, oh no, we nobles, we stick together. Sam wouldn't do that to me. And on the other hand, <laughs> Cotter Pike is, he's, Cotter thinks Sam is a coward. He's like, no way, there's no way this guy is pulling a fast one on me. He's too scared to do that. <laughs> so wrong again. I really love uh, the way Malister thinks he's figured it out. This quote is so funny. The old knight smiled, which is why he has not come to me himself. Yes, I quite understand, Samwell. Amen and I are both old men and wise in such matters. Say what you came to say. <laughs> it's so funny. Roy Dotrice absolutely crushes this scene. His Sir Dennis is so funny. <laughs> it's just like, he brings, he's, I mean, he's an old British guy and this is an old, you know, stodgy man. It fits really well with a, a role he's probably been cast in in a couple of movies and TV shows, if not quite a lot more than that. So, <laughs> I mean, Sir Dennis, right? It's so, <laughs> Dennis is a great name for a stodgy old knight who... And, Again, he's not a bad dude. He's not a, he's not a weaklinger by any means, but he is, a, he is a little snooty to a point where that it brings a little comedy. 
Knowing that Eamon won't last much longer is so very sad. And paired with his lament that he can't read anymore or see the sun, it's just so much to handle. So sad. But he's so great too, you know. Think of all the good things he does. The way he nudges Sam just the right way to get all this started. He's, I don't know, Sam, can you? <laughs> it's so good. He knows. It's, it's true what Malister says. And Malister says, Eamon and I are wise in such matters. Well, I think Eamon's wiser than you in such matters because he just, one little thread pull on Sam started this whole thing and he saw it coming. It's a beautiful example of how great deeds are sometimes held back for want of encouragement. This little tiny bit of leadership, mentorship makes all the difference. It's something that, you know, in the real world, why some, not all of our elders are worthy of being revered. Uh, but they're, like I said, some, not all, even in this story, Melisandre might be older than Eamon, and she's worthy of a different sort of respect. Walder Frey, well, he's not wor worth much respect at all. <laughs> like I said, sometimes <laughs> the our elders are worthy of being revered. Uh, Maud Mary one says, okay, follow me. Melisandre kills Shireen to save John. Stannis comes home and drives a sword through Melisandre for killing his daughter. He fulfills the Azor High prophecy. Okay, so it's, she becomes Nissa Nissa by him killing her before killing his daughter. You know, I mean, I can't say it's wrong. The problem is I don't see why Melisandre would kill Shireen to save John. We didn't, we don't have a strong reason to believe that's Mel necessary. Melisandre could have been, you know, at that moment convinced that John was Azor High after all. Hmm, interesting. And, you know, I, I, I'm not opposed to it entirely because, sure, you could, someone could say, yeah, you need death. Only death can pay for life. But why does it have to be Shireen specifically? And again, Beric was raised without any sacrifice whatsoever. He just, you know, six different times. Same with Catelyn. So... I don't think we need a sacrifice, but I don't suppose that means there can't be one. <laughs> but I am definitely open to Stannis Shireen theories. Nina says this election and especially this part are very strongly a riff on the papal election in the Accursed King series. The Accursed King series by Maurice Druon is a huge influence on A Song of Ice and Fire. It is his historical novels. There's seven of them. They were written by a French resistance hero. Like I said, Maurice Druon is his name. This dude is like highly decorated anti-Nazi guy. And he wrote this amazing historical series on a time period that features a lot of characters that are inspirations for A Song of Ice and Fire. One of the main characters is like a Robert Baratheon combined with Littlefinger. It's really amazing. He's a great character. His name is uh, Robert of Artois. Yeah, he's even named Robert. <laughs> and this is a great series. And there is a big papal election that has all sorts of interesting tricks and factionalizing and, and people playing, pretending to be frail when they're not. It's really neat. And I totally agree with Nina. So if you're looking for something else to read, we've got a link on our website. You can, it's, it's one of the, like I said, one of the biggest influences on George. If you're curious about the origins of A Song of Ice and Fire's influences, this is a huge one. The infamous or at least semi-infamous Child's Snow Knight line comes here. And two chapters from now, Sansa's going to make a regular Snow Knight. The phrase really stands out. With Sansa's clarification, two chapters from now, you get it's pretty clear that she's just talking about a snowman. Snow knight, snowman, same thing. But Cotter Pike's wording is so weird. He says, are you sure you stabbed an other and not just some child's snow knight? Who says that? Who says child's snowman? You just say snowman. <laughs> it's like saying, <laughs> you know, ch child's doll. You just 
doll. <laughs> Just call it a doll. It's a little odd. And these are the only two mentions of Snow Knight in the entire series. And they come two chapters apart. Patron Paul Berry noted that. Good catch, Paul. I didn't think to search for other references. I wouldn't have found them <laughs> if I had. It's just these two. So that's really peculiar. And of course, the if you've missed me talking about this before, the seemingly sneaky reference here is that the children made the others. Child's Snow Knight. The knights and their armor and their overwhelming physicality and superior weapons were overwhelming the first men and the children back in the day. And one, and this may have been before the Andals, but the point being that the others were human-like warriors made by the children to face, well, the human warriors that are now seen as knights. So it's a very strong little hidden theory there that I think has a lot of merit. And one day we'll probably learn whether or not the children really did make the others. And if they did, then this line is definitely going to be enshrined as major foreshadowing. But for now, we'll just put it on the likely slash maybe column. Tree Girl made a, wrote a great piece about Sam here that I wanted to share. Just two lines. She calls Sam a diamond left by the side of the road, picked up by John and now polished and valued, now showing his true depth and worth. Well said, Tree Girl. Stefan B. wonders about Dolores Ed's line when Cotter Pike says, we'll defend the wall to the last man. Dolores Ed says, probably me. And hopefully that's not foreshadowing. But at least if it is, then it means Dolores Ed survives <laughs> to the last man. And there's another point made on our Flick group about maybe Stannis is part of the team, the Azora High team. After all, Ashay and I have both been proponents of the concept that there is not just necessarily one savior. If you look at the, his, the ancient histories, all the different cultures, major cultures of the world that used to exist have their own prophesied hero that they seem to credit with ending the long night. Now, how can that be possible? Maybe they're all the same figure. Well, that doesn't really make sense for world-spanning cultures. But the point is, if we're looking at a assortment of figures, all who are made possible, all who are necessary as a team to yeah, defeat I mean, the darkness. Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't be able to defeat it if Stannis hadn't come. Yeah, Stannis is part of this, right? He His groundwork, even though he's not the one, his groundwork is crucial. Yeah, even if he did zero things from this point forward, he was crucial. Yeah, so... And he's gonna do more. So I really like this idea that if you envision this as not a who's the one, you look at who are the ones, the ones that are really important. And if you look at it that way, you know, then... It's a good way to say Stannis is a lot more deserving of credit rather than just this guy who's accidentally checking off some of the boxes like an idiot. He's not an idiot. He's, you know, think, doing his best. I think what you said is also the slogan for polyamory. What's that? It's not about who's the one. It's about who's the ones. <laughs> good point. <laughs> Scott McCloy with a very on point point for today's world. He says the only way to defeat a massive threat is global unity. Amen, Scott. Thank you for that. That is very true. I didn't think about how applicable that is to this whole Team Azora High situation or Team Fight the Darkness, Fight Winter. Team yeah. Fight Climate Change. <laughs> team Fight Pandemic. <laughs> team yeah. Fight Nuclear Warfare, etc. <laughs> That's an old, old lesson coming back around again. Yeah, well said, well said. 
and a good way to end the chapter. Let's go to John 12. Just say no to Winterfell, a.k.a. the gang votes for snow. No preamble, let's just go straight to the quote. Iron Emmett was a long, lanky young ranger whose endurance, strength, and swordsmanship were the pride of Eastwatch. John thinks how he's usually able to keep up with Emmett, but isn't doing so today because he didn't get any sleep. After a blow to the head, John sees Rob Stark appear in Emmett's place. It's like a little bit of a trance state. And then his mind goes back and it's fascinating. This is a, a pulled a nice big quote for us here. Every morning they had trained together since they were big enough to walk. Snow and Stark spinning and slashing about the wards of Winterfell, shouting and laughing, sometimes crying when there was no one else to see. They were not little boys when they fought but knights and mighty heroes. I'm Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight. John would call out and Rob would shout back. Well, I'm Florian the Fool. Or Rob would say, I'm the young dragon. And John would reply, I'm Sir Ryan Redwine. That morning, he called it first. I'm the Lord of Winterfell. He cried as he had a hundred times before. Only this time, this time, Rob had answered, You can't be the Lord of Winterfell. You're bastard-born. My lady mother says you can't ever be the Lord of Winterfell. I thought I had forgotten that. First of all, John yelling, I'm Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, stands out like Oriel the Eagle on fire. So too do a few of these other comments, like obviously Rob yelling, I'm the young dragon. I, I don't think I need to repeat how many times we've pointed out that parallel. Like, boy, did you ever become the young dragon, Rob. Wow. Uh, I'm Florian the Fool coming from Rob. That's a little bit like his relationship with Jane Westerling. And But John saying, I'm Sir Ryan Redwine, that's a little tougher to figure. Ryan Redwine was a fantastic Kingsguard that was a disaster as Lord as a Hand of the King. I don't know. Maybe that one doesn't apply as much to John, but mm, I'll let you all weigh in. Maybe I'm missing something there. Certainly basics like being a great warrior, that fits. Being a Lord Commander, that fits. So yeah, I'm the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard part, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. That's a decent parallel. But of course, the real crucial part here is the Lord of Winterfell bit. Clearly, this angers him, this memory, I mean, and he proceeds to overcome this large disadvantage in the yard and savagely defeats Iron Emmet. And then he goes for a walk after that. To clear his head, he's like, what is going on? He realizes he does want Winterfell. And in that very same moment, he reconnects with Ghost. Just as he's thinking how badly he wants it, it becomes intense but basic. He just, he wants meat. He wants blood. It's a very intense moment. The savagery is, is really powerful. And we've been looking for clues as to what John will, might be like after he's resurrected and if he's lived for a time in Ghost. Well, people who are arguing that John will be more savage or intense, well, this is a great bit of evidence for that argument right here as John is like merged with ghosts and not thinking about what's happening. And he's got, to, he's like drooling almost, <laughs> thinking of eating a deer. And we do rightly think a lot about what John will be after his rebirth. It's a huge open question. I mean, look at, let's just, if I could summarize where he is, where he started and where he might be going in just one sentence, it's crazy. He went from being, Drunk and joining the Night's Watch in his first chapter to being on track for many or all of the following titles. Lord Commander, Fire White, War King, Dragon Rider. 
And let's think about Ghost here too. We think a lot about what John will be like from Ghost's experience, but what about the other way around? Will John's personality being inside Ghost, will that affect the wolf's mind, his soul, et cetera, for lack of a better word? Maybe. Maybe persona is the right word. I don't know. Ultimately, he loves Ghost. Ghost is a part of him. Remember before, he doesn't count Ghost as a friend because he's too much a part of him. It's like, I'm my own friend. You know, that's, know, that's like some... That's like some Michael Scott sadness right there. The old gods are a part of Ghost, and thus that means they're also a part of him. So he can't destroy that. That's destroying a part of himself. That's what Melisandre and Stannis are asking for him to do to pay this price to get Winterfell. As Nina says, Ghost's appearance marks the big turning point of this chapter. He's the lone albino direwolf of his pack. Ghost is a visible reminder that John's separation by birth from the other Starks does not separate him in affection for or belief in them. John was and is still part of his Stark family. Despite his parentage, no matter what you believe or have accepted as truth, John is linked to his faux siblings through the direwolf connection. That's a real thing, no matter what bloodlines they actually share. The bastard among the trueborn is still what he is, but they are one pack. Yeah, they're united in love. They're bound by their shared heritage. John had joined the Night's Watch to earn a place of honor for himself, separate from the dynastic destinies of his brothers and sisters. He and his wolf had separated themselves from the rest of the pack, but they are still one family. Plus, with his werewood look and coloring, Ghost is a reminder of what is most sacred to the Starks, that is the old gods, and you, you can't forsake that. Here's another quote tying into that. And he alone of all the dire wolves was white. Six pups they'd found in the late summer snows, him and Rob, five that were gray and black and brown for the five Starks, and one white, as white as snow. He had his answer then. Snow is capital there, by the way. It's something you can't see from the quote, but the word snow, as white as snow, snow is capital. It's like it's as white as him almost. <laughs> The difference in the type of red that Melisandre's eyes are versus that of ghosts and the werewoods. That's a big point here too. We talked before about how ghost's eyes are red, Melisandre's eyes are red. But John makes a distinction here. That red is different than this red. So if he's to have Winterfell, it can't be these terms. It cannot be. It, it won't be your home anymore if you burn out its heart. And that is what we saw from the quote of what happened to Orel the Eagle when she burned that eagle, he felt his own heart burning, like Stannis's sigil, like the fiery, well, it's really the fiery heart sigil of R'hllor that Stannis has adopted. It's not really his sigil so much as it is the sigil of R'hllor. You can't burn the heart of Winterfell and still have it be Winterfell. It just, it doesn't work that way. Now, part of Jon's dilemma here is thinking that there's only two ways out of the situation. He, he can accept Stannis's offer, but that means feeding his own guilty desire for Winterfell and breaking his vows to the watch and burning the tree, which he just, that's perhaps the worst of the three. But if he stays in the watch, he's pretty sure that Janos Slint's going to be Lord Commander, and that is probably a death sentence too. But John chooses that because he would rather die than break up to three different sacred vows slash things he holds in principle. But what if Rob's will comes through? What does that mean? Think about that quote of him as a child with Rob saying, you can't ever be Lord of Winterfell. Having Rob come back around and say, 
actually, you can be Lord of Winterfell. Forget what happened in our childhood. You are worthy of it. And hey, you don't have to burn a weirwood to get it. It's right here in my will. There's nothing about burning things to take up the seat. That could be, wow, what a thing for John to hear or read after all that time. It would be a complete and total reversal of something he's believed his whole life. It's the opposite of what Tyrion has just faced. Tyrion has just had his whole life upended by having a lie revealed. This is kind of the opposite. It's like, no, John, all along, you were believing something about you that wasn't true. And here, believe the real truth now. It's so much easier. It's so much nicer to, to bask in the glow of Rob saying you do belong. Rob saying you do, you have earned this or you, you are a part of it all along. You have always been. And well, on a darker side, John may soon have something else in common with the person who told Rob about John's rights. John and Lady Stoneheart could be both animated by a god foreign to them in not too long from now. So very close together, John's dragon and his wolf emerge. That says a lot about where his identity really lies, right? Like, if, if that's not clear what I mean, John's dragon emerges when he's fighting Emmett. And then his wolf emerges, literally, ghost emerges from the woods and he's becoming wolfish in a moment before he realizes what's happening. Joe Buckley draws our attention to a particular part of John's memory that deals directly with Lady Catelyn in a way that I hadn't thought about. So let's take a look at this quote. It was not Lord Eddard's face he saw floating before him, though. It was Lady Catelyn's. With her deep blue eyes and hard, cold mouth, she looked a bit like Stannis. Who are you? That look had always seemed to say, this is not your place. Why are you here? Looking a floating. bit like... Floating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Looking a bit like Stannis. That's interesting because we just, last chapter, we talked about the balance between Stannis and Melisandre and how he's the... the blue-eyed king that reminds us of so much of ice while Melisandre is fire, and so they have this ice and fire pairing. Well, if we take that, then, then Lady Catelyn here is very icy as well, and that certainly makes sense. Cold mouth, deep blue eyes. Hello, that's pretty straightforward, right? Well, the focus here is clearly on the emotion of the moment and more of that unwelcomeness feeling. George is clearly trying to steer the reader into thinking John might actually accept the offer because this pain of his childhood, this pain of separation is pushing him. It's one of the factors weighing on him while he's trying to decide here. But what? why the ice imagery though? What is it about that? Is it casting her as an enemy? Is it casting her symbolically as a foe because that's who he's arrayed against? Well, hmm. Some few might believe that Stannis himself will become a white. Maybe he dies and is risen as, as part of the undead. Or if he takes on more of a Night Kingish role. I mean, he's going to the Night Ford after all. So maybe these are connections we're meant to make. After all, the original version of Lady Catelyn's death was supposed to happen beyond the wall. Way back when George had that planned for her. So this could be a little bit of a hearkening to that or a nod to all that. John's choosing... Joe writes is interrupted by Thorn and Marsh, but it's so interesting that he just, he knows what they're doing. He understands they're plotting. He says, let me leave you to your plotting. But he's so wrapped up in his own mind about his own identity that he's 
just removes himself. He could have sat there and continued to listen to them and gained information, but he's like, I don't even want to hear you plotting, even though it affects me directly. <laughs> but that is just John for you. He's just such a distaste he has for such types of conversations. He just is so against the concept of plotting and conspiracies and things like that. That's part of why Sam's so valuable. He needs someone to do that stuff for him because he can't roll on, run on principle only here, not in a place like this. So of course, there's a lot of parallels to Danny here. We've noted other types of parallels, but this is a, a big one. We spoke about this during her last chapter, which is that John is having the option to go home and seek his birthright, kind of in the same way Danny is seeking the Iron Throne. But just like John, it matters to him so much how he gets his birthright, if he's even going to get it. Danny is of a similar mind, at, currently anyway. She wants to do it right. She doesn't want to just come in and blast everybody. Maybe that is what will happen. I kind of don't think so. But certainly her mind state is, I don't want to just come in and blast everyone. So <laughs> it's, she also has morals about how this needs to be done. It's not about the prize. The process of getting the prize is just as important. Even though he doesn't reference it here, John is aware of the larger war out there, meaning the conflict in the North. And that is a big part of why Stannis wants him to have Winterfell because he wants to have someone he can count on, someone he can depend on, someone he can trust, someone who might even help him in his campaign if he's out there. I certainly laugh at Janice Lent's introduction to Ghost. Look, the beast walks among us. It should be killed. He's just, he's really just not helping himself with his candidacy there because everyone else is pretty used to Ghost. And this is kind of cowardly for Janice to be like, ah, oh, the wolf. <laughs> it's not a good, if you can't face that wolf, are you going to face the others? I mean, you're going to face giants and I mean, he lives in the mammoths? North too. What's that? And he lives in the North. Yeah. <laughs> you think he'd understand like, Hey, maybe it's good to have a wolf go out, uh, you know, on ranging expeditions. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what Mormont said. He's like, he can hunt for us too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's useful. Yeah, see the value. <laughs> Another. So along the same lines as, as we pointed out at the beginning with the themes, how great is the final line here? The wall was his. The night was dark, and he had a king to face. So good, so good. Another chalk up. Another one for George there. Now, interestingly, Iron Emmett is still John's friend, despite this beating and, and the nasty comment about, oh, I know how Corrin Halfan must have felt. He's one of the ones who throws Janos Slint down on the block in A Dance with Dragons, Emmett is, so we'll forget that. But on the sad side, John does not take Mel's advice later about keeping his friends close. Emmett is one of many friends that John sends off to help start up these other castles. It's a similar path we're seeing with Danny and Tyrion, which is, they're just heading and encouraging a path of isolation. And that's not good for the mental state. It's not good for the self. This is the first definitive time we've seen Lord Mormont's raven since the mutiny at Craster's Keep. We've mentioned times that we might have seen it. And I think the time that, um, you know, just outside with John, we talked about last chapter when John's walking to Mance's tent. I think that one, I leaned against that one. Alistair Thorne gives more evidence in Sam's chapter why that one was probably just a regular raven or one of the one of the trained ravens, but not Mormont's raven, which is he says, all those ravens say snow. And that is what the raven says to John as he's walking through Mance's tent. So this is the only time for sure that it's Mormont's raven. It's possible we've seen him in other spots, 
but probably not in Sam's chapter because Sam instantly recognizes the raven here. So if he would have, he could have recognized it other times too and doesn't. Anyway, it's definitely Blood Raven though. I've, of all the times that I'm like, eh, Blood Raven might have been involved. This is probably, well, maybe not number one, but it's in the top five most likely instances of Blood Raven interfering with things happening in through an animal. Leading the dire wolves to the Starks at the beginning is another strong, strong candidate. So the question is though, why though? Why is John why would Blood Raven care to have John be Lord Commander? Well, it's similar to why Stannis wants John at Winterfell or as Lord Commander in, in a second, you know, secondary role. Because, well, who knows more? The others. As far as all the leaders arrayed, uh, all the candidates, who's the best candidate to fight the others? It's Jon Snow. <laughs> it's pretty clearly Jon Snow. It's not Janos Slint. It, Cotter Pike might not be bad, but it also doesn't seem like Dennis Malister would be that great at it either. And like, who else is there? There's a few other names were thrown around, but they aren't qualified either. They're far, much less qualified. So it might just be that simple, but it's also... If we consider who Blood Raven has been most focused on throughout all this, it's Bran. So having uh, someone who's a relative of Bran in command of the Wall, see why that would be something that falls in line with Blood Raven's preferred uh, alignment of all the different leadership in the North. So there's that. Plus, there's maybe the possibility that uh, he can get into John's dreams. Maybe he can get into Ghost or the Wolf or, or the. Mormont's Raven is still right there. We see Mormont's Raven basically takes up residence with John from this point on. So Blood Raven's like right there with him at like all times, or at least could be if he's happens to be looking through the Raven's eyes in that particular moment. So there's a lot of reasons I think that he wants it that way. Also, on the other side, it's not just that John is the right candidate, but he probably really doesn't want some of the other candidates, I, I mentioned their, their shortcomings, but I didn't mention specifically that he would try to avoid having them. Like if, if Jon Snow wasn't in the picture, I wonder if Blood Raven wouldn't just do something to stop Slint from winning. <laughs> Another example of what we talked about last time about Janice Slint and him making things about himself when the watch is supposed to be a collective organization. Look at this line. I'm glad someone calls him out for it for once. Lord Commander, I will not have it. I will not suffer it. Cotter Pike stood up. You won't suffer it. Might be you had those gold cloaks trained to lick your bloody ass, but you're wearing a black cloak now. Yeah, that's exactly right. There is no you. There's no I will not suffer it. There is a we. There is no I in this spot. He doesn't get it. He is so not <laughs> in the Night's Watch mentality he has not sunk in and it never will because he's not going to be alive that much longer. And the vote is binding. He can't just be like, oh, I'm not going to obey the vote. Are you kidding me? That's no, they take that vote seriously. They take the votes of their brothers seriously. They take that selection as a sacred thing. That's a big deal. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite little lines in this chapter is, is Pip singing after the election. He's like, Sam, Sam, the Marvel man, Sam, the wizard. It's like, Sam the wizard. That's like from the show. And Sam's like, I wanted to be a wizard. And they laugh at him. It's like, hey, <laughs> I wonder if the show was thinking of this line when they did that. Because that's season one, they used that line. And this is, of course, end of book three, which book show equivalent is, well, I don't even know where that would be, but a lot farther down. 
And John Hagee asks, how are these stone, how are these baths kept hot at the, at the wall? Good logistical question there. Scott Wartman looked it up before I even saw the question and doing some research, it looks like what they do is they superheat stones in the fires and place them under these baths, most likely. That's how it happened in the real world. That's one way. Sometimes the stones go directly in the water um, in a separate area where the hot water is then pushed along into the bath area. So there's usually it's hot stones. And that's it's funny to think about it that way because that's still how a lot of saunas operate even now. Heat up the stones, pour water on them. There's your steam, et cetera. Comes back to our question that you brought up before, uh, Shay. You mentioned that Sam interfering with this vote could foreshadow him interfering with the Great Council. We come right back to that because if Bloodraven interfered in the vote, and maybe Bloodraven will interfere in the Great Council. After all, Bloodraven voting for... he'll still be around? Yeah, he may not be around. That's a good point. He may be gone. But you could see why he would interfere, say, on Bran's behalf. <laughs> I'm picturing Bran interfering, like he skin changes into each person on the Great Council. Whoa. Like, subsequently, each one, and says, I think it should be Bran. <laughs> That's how he's elected. <laughs> also, just the idea that Bloodraven was the last guy to be in charge of the last Great Council. The one that got Egg elected was run by Bloodraven. He was the, the hand of the king at the time, so it was kind of felt to him to facilitate the Great Council. And so he's got a little experience in this thing, so maybe indeed he'll come back around. So definitely him in interfering with votes is, is uh, something that's been on the table for a while, something he maybe have a lot of experience with. You wonder how much he made sure Egg was elected or perhaps tried to stop it. I don't know. That's a topic for another time. Actually, it's a topic we've already handled. Our Bloodraven series does indeed reference these events. And hopefully we covered them thoroughly. I'd like to think we did. We certainly spent a lot of time on it. Tree Girl with a really good take here. John's ice and fire heritage isn't so much about his and his bloodlines, isn't so much about how it makes him a possible king. It's about how it makes him perfect for the war for the dawn. It's the blood, it's more of a, almost a magical com combination of bloodlines that makes him the right fit, potentially as an undead savior or because of his fire and ice blood allows him to be something more than, say, a barrack or a Stoneheart would be. Something to very much keep our eyes on going forward. Here's a great little jokey catch by Sir Pigpen and Violent Messiah kind of teaming up on a joke from our Discord channel. John, when, he, when Ghost is creeping into his mind and he's starting to feel hungry, it's Hungry Like the Direwolf by Duran Duran. <laughs> Good one, guys. <laughs> that is a song from the 80s. If you didn't know, Hungry Like the Wolf by Duran Duran. Okay, yeah. All right, let's move on. Sansa 7, the last non-epilogue chapter, the last repeated POV chapter. Probably a surprise to some people that Sansa would be the final regular chapter at the time. Were some of you surprised at that? Maybe at the time you were, but by the end of the chapter, you probably were like, oh, this is why it was last. But on reread, there's so much more going on here that I bet you missed some of, if not a lot of. So let's get to it. This one's called Slaying a Giant in a Castle of Snow. At least our name for it is, a.k.a. the one with only cat. And it starts like this. She awoke all at once, every nerve a tingle. I don't quite know what that means, awoke means all at once. 
Oh, I was picturing every nerve a tingle. That part I understand. Oh, yeah, I was just picturing something else entirely, but I, go on. It makes sense, though. Sometimes people say, oh, I'm like half asleep. So I, I guess mean, that's yeah, kind of... today I woke up very groggy. I did not wake up all at once. Yeah. Santa dreams of home, and that's part of what leads her to building this so important castle of snow in this chapter. She wonders if it's the snow that woke her up. That's interesting. Snow itself reminds her of home. She thinks how this is the first time she's seen snow since the day she left Winterfell when Rob had snow melting in his hair. Oh. In John's last chapter, he thinks of his second chapter in the Game of Thrones when he's parting with Rob and sees this exact same snow melt in his hair that Santa's referring to. And then in this book, also, Arya thinks of that same snow melt in Rob's hair in her seventh chapter. And Sansa herself has snow in her hair when Lysa is murdered. Here's a quote. It hurt to remember how happy she had been that morning. Cullen had helped her mount, and she'd ridden out with the snowflakes swirling around her, off to see the great, wide world. I thought my song was beginning that day, but it was almost done. Now, Cullen is dead now, and his son Harwin is in the Brother Without Banners. Very famously, he's the one that caught Arya when she ran away on her horse because, well, he's the son of the, you know, head, I forget the term, well, head horse guy at Winterfell. So we're going to see Harwin again in the epilogue. He's the translator for Lady Stoneheart. So he's still kind of serving the Starks in a way, even though he had said he's done serving the Starks. Well, he finds himself serving, well, a Tully, if you want to be specific, maybe. You could argue that the snow melt in Rob's hair is a sign of like the king of winter and his crown is melting. But that crown of snow could yet be claimed by John and or Sansa, perhaps. Quote. When she opened the door to the garden, it was so lovely that she held her breath, unwilling to disturb such perfect beauty. The snow drifted down and down, all in ghostly silence and lay thick and unbroken on the ground. All color had fled the world outside. It was a place of whites and blacks and grays, white towers and white snow and white statues, black shadows and black trees, the dark gray sky above. A pure world, Sansa thought. I do not belong here. Or just like John, she's having thoughts of not belonging. As we said at the beginning, there's a lot of themes of the Stark children finding common ground with each other's attitudes without realizing it. Kind of on their own, they're having similar thoughts with each other. If indeed John is not a bastard, then that's another thing he and Sansa have in common. They're both pretending to be a bastard, whether they know it or not. And it's also pointed out that werewoods don't grow up in the Erie in this chapter. And that's a pretty straightforward bit of symbolism, isn't it? Especially when she's thinking, I do not belong here. <laughs> There's no werewoods. Yeah, you case in point there. Also a bit like John, she has a trance-like moment. It's nothing like beating a guy in, in training that was previously beating him, but she's thinking of home, just like John was, and suddenly she realizes she's on her knees and doesn't realize how she got there. Like I said, not nearly as powerful as John beating Iron Emma during a trance, but it's a nice synchronicity and very familiar moment. George emphasizes again and again the contrast between Winterfell and the Eyrie. Winterfell is grounded, a wide, sprawling castle. The Eyrie is narrow and high up in the air. Winterfell is always warm, even in the depth of winter. The Eyrie is literally uninhabitable in the winter because of the cold and snow. In Winterfell, she was surrounded by family and loved ones. In the Eyrie, there is only Lysa, Robert, 
And sometimes Littlefinger, who's obviously a predator, plus this small household, which includes the multi-rapist Marillion. I mean, yikes. The area is obviously never going to match Winterfell for warmth or the Red Keep for activity, but it's got neither at all right now, essentially. There was a, at least a court of sorts when Catelyn visited. There was large groups of people and points of interest. It's very different now than when Cat and Tyrion were there early in the series. Under Lysa, it's an empty, cold place hollowed to its bare bones. No one who doesn't need to be there is there, and very few people need to be there. We already learned Littlefinger left. He's When he appears during Santa's castle building scene, she hasn't seen him for a while, for days or maybe even weeks. He's been off, well, doing Littlefinger things, securing his new hold over the veil that he's just acquired in advance, but he needs to, and once he does that, well, it's time to get rid of Lysa. No one who doesn't need to be there, like I said, is there, but Lysa has turned on those same veil lords against her because of her refusal to go to war and her, you know, marrying Littlefinger. There's no, obviously there's no group of people trying to marry her now that she's already married. And as we said in the last chapter, there's people like Bronzeon Royce flat out almost in open rebellion over her refusal to enter the war. It's a big slander on their honor. They look like cowards. They look like they won't defend their friends. It's, it's very against the values of chivalry, which are held dear in the Vale because it's the birthplace of those values in Westeros because the Andals came ashore there first, bringing knighthood and those concepts of the seven and thus that is why it's said to be, the veil is said to be the heart of those concepts and values. So in one way, it's nice for Sansa to be away from the Red Keep and some of these other things. But in another way, it's just the same. It's, it's just more of the same. The Game of Thrones being played elsewhere. It's, this is an important lesson. It's Danny over in Slaver's Bay, John at the Wall, everywhere you go, Someone's playing the Game of Thrones. Wherever there's politics and power, the Game of Thrones is being played. Sansa left the Red Keep to, for the Eyrie, even though there's fewer people, fewer things to fight over. It's more of the same, just with a different flavor. Everywhere in the world. <laughs> I do love the snow castle scene. It could very much spell out the events of the future for her, but maybe even more than a lot of people realize. It could be a metaphor, not just for rebuilding Winterfell, but for rebuilding the entire North. Quote, My lord husband, Sansa thought as she contemplated the ruins of Winterfell. The snow had stopped and it was colder than before. What a way to describe it. The snow had stopped and it was colder than before. And of course, this is right after Robert Aaron and his doll giant have smashed her creation. Maybe the end of the snow could be the defeat of the others colder before, referring to the danger and pain of aftermath which is that the challenges after any sort of long night will be great. We did see the, the TV's version of that. Obviously, I don't need to get into it, but the point being, it wasn't all rosy after the others were defeated. I don't think anyone's expecting it to just be all nice afterwards, but this is a reminder of that. Winterfell will, re will actually technically be rebuilt by the Boltons, but surely that's not enough. Sansa quote here, it was only a castle when she began, but before very long, Sansa knew it was Winterfell. It's going to probably need a whole new another round of repairs made anyway. I doubt the fighting at Winterfell is done. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be more smashing and, and war. But 
more to the point, it's not going to have the flavor of Winterfell if it's rebuilt by Boltons. <laughs> Someone who knows it really well needs to rebuild it. And as we see in this chapter, Sansa knows Winterfell really well. She has a distinctly clear, detailed memory of its layout. And that's a really powerful in showing how much it means to her and how much it's where she belongs from her perspective. She thinks she doesn't belong here. She didn't really belong at at court, although when she arrived, she thought she did. But she learned pretty quickly that's not the case. Going back home, that's where she has power. That's where she has strength. And that's where it seems like her story is going to be set in the long run. This line right here, it's a quick one. I'll read myself. Big queen energy for sure. She stood towering over the great white castle. (laughs) I love it. Not to mention when she puts the giant's head on a spike. I mean, is this little finger himself she's putting on a spike, cutting his head off, maybe having him executed like a northerner would? Very, very possible. It's interesting, too, how much work she puts into it. She's cold, her hands are going numb, and she thinks to herself, quote, the castle was all that mattered. If we're trying to extend this metaphor pretty far, Littlefinger and her going north, her, him with his own plans for what that's all for, but her with her plans to rebuild Winterfell, well, Littlefinger's going to be helping to get what he wants. So it really fits pretty well that he's helping her build this castle because he is going to be helping her go to Winterfell, even though it's his own ambitions. She's going to be along for the ride, perhaps with her own set of plans, keeping separate from him, planning on betraying him, using him as he used her, kind of turning it around on him. So that fits really well, right? Spell that all out. She allows Littlefinger to help, to help her take back Winterfell. Then he helps with the process of rebuilding getting the North settled again. And then before he can sink his claws into it, before he can start working, doing his worst, well, he finds his, we find him with his head on the walls of Winterfell. And this is where I remind you that his original house sigil is the head of the Titan of Bravos. So a disembodied head is a rather perfect fit for this. I don't really need to keep repeating how awful Littlefinger's creepiness is. I'll just... Touch on it briefly, because we all know it's incredibly over the top. The guy is so gross. He's like, let me warm your hands. Let me kiss you. It's just, I don't have anything new to add to that. It's just <laughs> continuous and awful for Sansa. And he, it just reminds us of how terrible this dude is. But from his perspective, it's hard to understate how perfect she is as far as his life's goal and work. He's always wanted to be a part of the nobility. He's always wanted to be worthy of Catelyn Stark in a, you know, specifically her, but also just in general of noble women and noble men. The person worthy of Catelyn Stark from what he saw as a child was Brandon Stark and then Ned Stark. Claiming Winterfell through Sansa gets him all of those things. Plus, she looks like Catelyn Stark. So it's it's like he is getting a chance to relive what he wanted from his boyhood, though I do not think he's gonna get it. I think he's going to get, from his perspective, he's going to think he's almost there and then it's going to come crashing down on him. But we'll see how George writes it. So yeah, all his childhood desires wrapped up in one person. Now that he has her, well, he thinks he has her. In her mind, he, she does not have him. He, she's creeped out more and more every day. But now that he has a document naming him Lord Protector, 
He can envision control of three of the kingdoms. Let that sink in, folks. With her, he's got the key to the north and he thinks he can rule through her, maybe even marry her and, and be more direct with it. He's got title here in the Vale. He's already Lord Paramount of the Trident. And in his mind too, he probably thinks that this makes him even more appealing, even more attractive. It doesn't, not to her. I mean, it does to other people probably, but not to Sansa. He has perhaps the wrong impression of, of the place Winterfell as well. A sign that he doesn't understand it, a sign he doesn't belong. While she doesn't belong here, he doesn't belong there. When he tells her he imagines it being a dark and cold place, that he dreams of it like that ever since Kat went off with Ned there, he's projecting a bit or a lot, perhaps, and she responds like this. No, it was always warm even when it snowed. Water from the hot springs is piped through the walls to warm them, and inside the glass gardens, it was always like the hottest day of summer. Maybe like her, definitely like John, meaning like that they're always warm even in winter, that they're a beacon within winter. She's like, she is the glass gardens. <laughs> Sansa is the glass gardens of the North. I love it. There's so much in this chapter about incongruity with tied to themes of, of weather. It's shown how Sansa belongs there and Littlefinger does not. He is out of his element there, though he is really wants to be. He really is trying to force something that isn't meant. Of course, there's things that can bring Littlefinger down despite how powerful he's becoming. And we see examples of that here that he just shuts down quickly. Now that Lysa is openly talking about killing John Aaron after losing her temper over the Sansa kiss thing, well, we've already seen her lose her temper and talk too much before. So again, as we detailed last time, Littlefinger cannot risk that getting out. We talked about how Littlefinger was being honest regarding Dantos, that he had to be killed because he would sell their secrets. Ruthless but true. Ditto here, except it's not the selling. Lysa's not going to sell their secrets, but she will spill them. So she's, she's understanding him gradually, not on a complex level, of course, but she senses his intent. At one point, she thinks how he sounds like Marillion. And Marillion, her thoughts on Marillion are very distinct. So that's very telling. I mean, this is a guy who tried to rape her. And so interestingly, what saves Sansa from this uncomfortable attempt of him kissing her is Robert Aaron runs up and interrupts. Now, I'm suspicious of that because we know Lysa saw them kissing. So did she send her son out there to interrupt them maybe on purpose? Because it's the timing is awfully peculiar. That could just be a coincidence. But it's hmm, right as Sansa looks up to see that Lysa's no longer looking. A few seconds later, Robert Aaron runs out and is like, ah, blah, 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 castle, giant, blah, blah. So a little, little miniature conspiracy theory there. But then... He smashes the castle and a little spoiled boy destroying something, then arguing that it wasn't his fault. <laughs> this kind of unwinnable argument with a small child is awfully familiar for a lot of people, I think, in the real world. And that's basically what Littlefinger himself is, though. He's a little spoiled boy destroying things because that he didn't go the way he wanted to and then blaming it on other people because maybe, you know, he's made this way or something. He's just a lot more sophisticated and sneaky and grown up and doesn't have, doesn't have a mother like Lysa dominating him, things like that. Sweet Robin's giant is literally a puppet, little finger puppet master, but he's not controlling this one. It's rather easy to see who's controlling this puppet. 
Robert Aaron doesn't actually have plausible deniability as to whose giant this was. His hands are not clean. They're covered with stuffing. <laughs> but Littlefinger has his people destroy houses and families and individuals without letting on that he was the one behind it. So it's kind of a really rough dichotomy here of how people act when they're destroying houses and, and, and families and, and out in the open versus doing it from behind the scenes like Littlefinger would do. And it's very noteworthy as we're coming back to the style of how this plays out. Sansa, when she grabs the doll, she rips the head off. I've already talked about the execution part, but I think that adds to it a little bit. Watch out, Littlefinger. Other possible foreshadowing for Little's death here, Littlefinger's death here may also be paired with what's going to happen to Robert Aaron himself. The shaking sickness he puts on display here as he's uh, getting frustrated with what's happening. I don't see it directly causing his death, but it is the cover for doses of sweet sleep that he's being openly given in A Feast for Crows. They calm him, but have a cumulative effect. Maester Coleman tells Littlefinger it's too much, but Maester Coleman quails when Littlefinger says, no, you're giving him more. It's going to be something awfully hard to prove in terms of, well, this is a frail little kid who's already got health issues. If he dies one day, it's going to be awfully hard to say, oh, he was murdered. It's going to be very difficult to prove that. But that's all in the future and is speculative. What we know for sure here is that all the snow and cold at the outset of this chapter is fitting given the utter coldness in Littlefinger's murder of Lysa. Her silence in that moment of death is of being pushed says it all. She was so very loud about everything else, especially her wedding night, just before her death, yelling out secrets, everything. It's so tragic that she has nothing to say in that moment. It's such an utter betrayal and the thing he says to her, good Lord. And it doesn't stop there. Just to give an idea of how ruthless he is, it's not enough to say the worst thing he could possibly say in the moment he kills her. When Sansa points out to him in the first chapter of A Feast for Crows that Robert keeps crying because he misses his mother, Littlefinger shrugs and says, eh, the wench is dead. <laughs> wow. Damn. Yeesh. So just like it always seems to be with Lysa, along with her brutally cold murder, how brutally unfair is it for her to blame Sansa for Littlefinger's advances? Talk about peak victim blaming. But it also says a lot that coming from Lysa, it's not surprising. Blaming the victim or blaming the wrong person is nothing new from her. It will be part of Littlefinger's arsenal in trying to get Sansa to feel like he saved her. He's like, well, Lysa would have eventually... But me, I, I stopped it. Come on, Littlefinger. <laughs> As Girls Gone Cannon would say, get a job, Littlefinger. The lead-up also makes it pretty clear Marillion has to go or that he will go after Lysa goes, meaning <laughs> he's clearly on Littlefinger's chopping block. He's the very picture of letting favor go to his head. The gifts Lysa was giving him are absurd. Like the reading, I, I'm not gonna, I didn't quote it, but you look at the things that he was giving, she was giving him and it's like, what the, John Aaron's Falcon? I mean, this is, it's a little bit like Tytos bringing in a sex worker and letting him wear, letting her wear all of Tywin's mother's clothes and jewels. This is a bit similar to that. You have this just kind of random up jump person that's lowborn that's been made Lysa's favorite and is getting all these like high gifts that normally are reserved for this inner circle thing. Marillion, is, of course, a major difference is they're not apparently sleeping together, but still, whatever, it's a small difference. Merlin has made himself so very hated that Lysa 
because of how his relationship with Lysa, that Littlefinger just knows that he can blame it on him and no one's going to object because they hate him so much. But it's not just the blame and the hatred. It's that he can bribe certain people. We're going to see more of that in the next book where one of the main people that can make or break his accusal is Nestor Royce. And he gives Nestor Royce a castle <laughs> to be on his side, something that he probably thought ahead way, uh, thought about way in advance, meaning how to bribe, who to bribe, and all that. Littlefinger has also rightly planned ahead for Lysa's murder. Now, he didn't plan on killing her that day. Probably he could not have known that he, Lysa would push Sansa towards the moon door, but he had to know that he was going to kill her soon enough. It had to be a plan because of he had already planned on making these bribes and he had to know that he was wanting, he had to know he was going to take over and he had, he's got to move quickly because again, the frailty of Robert Aaron is in play and he doesn't want Robert Aaron to die before Lysa. He needs to have control of the ruler and that means the ruler has to survive long enough for him to issue orders in his name. Much like what we said with Tommen and Joffrey and perhaps their declarations and signatures being invalid because of, if they get proven, they're not really lords or not really worthy of the, of the crown because they were not Robert's kids. Littlefinger signs documents in Robert Aaron's name, but he uses his own signature, meaning that if Littlefinger is removed from power, then Littlefinger's declarations go. Thus, the castle that he gives to Nestor Royce by signing it in his name, Nestor Royce will see the unwritten words on the contract, which is, Littlefinger goes down, so do I. I don't get to keep this castle if Littlefinger loses his power. So Littlefinger very skillfully buys Nestor Royce, and that helps him with this whole Merlion situation. And he's, like I said, probably thought it out all in advance. So what was his plan to kill Lysa then? How was he going to kill her if he was, if, if, since this opportunity just sort of presented itself? Not entirely clear. Maybe poison. Poison's simple enough. There's other possibilities. Maybe he could trick someone else into behaving jealously and pinning it on them. Who knows? Littlefinger is good at this sort of thing, and he surely has plenty of options. It probably wasn't just one particular plan and nothing else would have worked. But also, we have to consider that he was forcing the issue right then and there. Is Littlefinger just being bold and not caring? Or is he just all hot and bothered? Is that why he tried to kiss Sansa right there? Knowing that Lysa might be watching? Or is that, was he hoping she saw because he knew that she would victim blame and come for Sansa and blame Sansa, not Littlefinger? It's like, you were tempting him, all this. Littlefinger understands Lysa's mind well enough to predict how she'll react to such a thing. So it could have been, very, even more staged than we think. He might have been like, oh, wait till she sees this. <laughs> and wow, if that's the case, damn, what a planner. So like Varys did with Tywin and Tyrion, I don't think that this was planned. It was taking advantage of a developing situation that he sort of planned. I mean, I think Tywin needed to die from Varys' perspective. He may not have needed to die right in that moment, but hey, this is, this is what's happening. We got to roll with it. Similar thing here. Littlefinger, Varus, these are men who know how to jump on an opportunity as soon as it appears. They've been, that's something they're very good at. It's, the, it's a trait of ambitious operators like that. They're always on the lookout for something that can move them up the ladder. And this is an example of that, that is kind of a parallel circumstance to 
very close set chapters. We also get a, a brief mention of Littlefinger's plan with the Corbrays, as Nina points out. The Corbrays are an interesting situation in the next book. He gives a ton of money to one of them who's poor, the, the head of the household, but also apparently bribes Lynn Corbray, who is the wielder of Lady Forlorn, and seemingly shows that House Corbray is a split against itself, but there's a lot of evidence we'll discuss at the time that shows that this is an act, like a lot of what Lynn Corbray is doing. Nina says, this chapter has one of her favorite Sansa memories, which is chasing Arya through the snow. It's a reminder that it's a very interesting dichotomy almost everywhere else, whether it's in the north, for the wall, I mean, and these other places where snow is starting to fall. It's not a good thing. But Sansa associates snow with positive memories and happiness. It's a, it's, she's perhaps the only person right now thinking of snow in a positive light because it's associated with home and all these good memories. So that's really interesting, something that kind of flies under the radar if you're not paying too close attention to how everybody else is viewing snow versus how Sansa's looking at it here and how it's such a symbol of home for her, whereas for everybody else, it's, it's a bad thing. So that's another chapter sequencing thing bit here. With, in John's chapters, we have stories of him and Rob, and now we're getting the younger, uh, younger Stark children thinking of each other. You know, there's no, there's no Brandon Rickon right at the moment, but still, this is a lot of going back to the beginning, the early memories of a Game of Thrones book one when the Starks were all together for the last time. We don't get to see sisterhood on page because when we see Arya and Sansa at the start of the books, they're more feuding over some things. Not big things, but they're feuding. It's, they're not painted as sisters who get along super well. But this shows us that they have gotten along well, that they are still sisters, that even though they may have grown apart, they're interested in different things. This is a reminder that they are still very much connected and they do have a future, perhaps, that, that has some reason for optimism. It also definitely feels like foreshadowing, uh, or could be, when Sansa throws snow at Littlefinger and tells him that he should have brought her home, the real home, and she thinks then that Winterfell gives her strength, and it could be because of some of that inner strength is that when she finds the courage later to denounce Littlefinger for betraying Ned, for encouraging Joffrey, for all these other things, forcing Jane into sex slavery, I mean, that's my, that might be a thing that Sansa discovers when they get back north. I mean, I wonder what Littlefinger's plan for that is. He's just like, oh, I can wave that away. Maybe he expects the Boltons will just be all killed before he even gets there and no one will ever find Jane. But there's a lot of these little pieces of evidence hanging over Littlefinger that could really undo him in part because he doesn't realize how dangerous they are for someone to learn because he doesn't understand these sensibilities. Joe points out a, a, a thing about Lysa here to try to help us break down her mental state, which is a difficult thing to do. So bravo, Joe, for taking a shot here. Sansa is just too much like Catelyn. Worst of all, deep down, she knows that Peter initiated the kiss, but she's projecting, she's frustrated, she's angry, and she's just all over the place with, with these emotions. It's driving her a bit crazy. She knows he really wants Sansa as he really wanted Catelyn before her. There's nothing she can do about it except lie to herself about it. It's a little Tyrion-esque where she's mad at the world that no one loves her and that other people in her family get more love, not really for what they've done, just for what they look like. Not that Catelyn hasn't done good things, but Lysa doesn't qualify it that way in her mind. To her, 
Catelyn got what she got because she was older and prettier. It wasn't really about any agency or action she took. And Tyrion kind of sees some of these things the same way. At one point, Tyrion looks at, even in his last scene, no, looks at Jamie's legs in a kind of funny way, like, look how long and strong they are. The jealousy is always there. I sympathize with it somewhat. But it's also a big part about how these little things add up to a lot in her mind. And even after Catelyn's dead, I mean, a part of her probably thought, finally, I'm free from that. I'm finally, I'm free from being in Cat's shadow, but she's not. Becomes another cat to use a borrow a phrase applied to an entirely different scenario, a younger, more beautiful queen coming along to replace you. Couple of notes here at the end. Little, uh, Joe makes a point here that I somewhat agree with. Let this all sink in. This continent-spanning conflict with a billion effects and aftermath, this absolute horror that has consumed the entire saga came about because two normal humans with normal emotions, it, it all came from this in a lot of ways. Having Baelish get his lover, to his lover that he doesn't really love, to lie about a murder effectively started this whole thing. I mean, there were other elements in play that Littlefinger had nothing to do with, but he had, among all the characters, had the most to do with starting the War of the Five Kings. And that's a huge, huge reveal that you knew the guy was causing problems. You knew he had started things. You knew he was working angles. But the fact that he had been working such a crucial angle from the start of the story is, is still registers as a massive reveal. Just those couple of acts from Lysa being compelled to write that letter results in all this. It blows the mind, as Joe writes. I can't, it's, you can't do justice to the description of, of how well this is all laid out by George. What it does, too, uh, you can kind of maybe make a point, a case, that the biggest villain, not the ultimate villain, because you can't look at A Song of Ice and Fire as a, as a one-on-one kind of thing like that, but the biggest villain to date, or at least the biggest antagonist to date in this story is Peter Baelish. You get that on so many levels here with his absolute cruelty to Lysa, not just in killing her, but into taunting her with the worst thing he could possibly say in the moment of her death. Pair that along with his creepiness towards Sansa, his setting so many awful plans into motion and little other small details that are not really small, but in the scheme of things are small compared to big political upheaval, like the way he treats Jane Poole and the way he's treated Lysa. But there's just no good to him. There is no redemption in this character, no expectation of such. He's bad and he's getting worse the more power he gets. And Sansa is perhaps the best positioned out of everyone to stop him because she's the only one who has all this information. Everyone else just has bits and pieces. They know a little bit about Littlefinger. They know this plan he did, this plot he did, but they don't know about 98% of the others. Sansa knows more about Littlefinger than anyone. And because he's so in love with her, she's not at risk of being killed by him. Whereas anyone else in this position that knew all his secrets he wouldn't be he would not want such a person to be left alive to put him at such risk but Sansa's different because he wants her Nude Rock 4 forces what does that say about her OG connection given she's lost her wolf and she had no godswood it's strong isn't it like no wolf no godswood yet she's still having these dreams she's still feeling this connection she's still thinking of her childhood so good call Nude Rock 44 
highlighting that her connection is powerful even without the supernatural elements. It's it's a very personal human connection, but there's still room for some supernatural as well. We'll see about that. Well, Messiah 666 says the Aerie comes off like a mental hospital with all the isolation and white marble and white walls. Huh, that's a great catch. I never thought about it that way. And Lysa certainly gone mad from isolation and well, and other things, but good call. Yeah, I like that. <clears throat> Matt Reese says history of Westeros. My guess is that Littlefinger might have been planning an accident with the mules for Lysa. That would be a way for her to fall to her death and not have anyone else to blame for it. Good idea. Well, I guess that is possible that, uh, yes, on the mules, but also it could be that her accident could be right before they escaped. Or before they escaped? Like they could leave right after that on the mules. Oh, okay, sure. You know, too, I just, there's two ways to look at it. Like that could be when he wanted it time to when they were already naturally going to leave. That's true. Because that dying would, on the way. It would make it really hard to investigate. Like, because yeah. the castle is inhospitable and it's like, yeah. oh, she just fell down into these snows. But yeah, either way, like I think that makes a lot of sense for that to be the time period that he was picturing her dying. Yeah, because like we already made the point, he needs her to die somewhat soonish uh, or else she's either going to spill his secrets or Robin Aaron is going to die first. And just, yeah, time was not on his side. Small detail, the broken statue, the weeping lady, still there after Bronn knocked it over during his fight with Sir Vardis Egan. It's covered in snow a little bit. So it's kind of like a very uh, interesting little piece of imagery there with this, this snow falling over this old scene that we remember from a few books ago and, and what it says about uh, the passage of time and changing of seasons and all that. So as we mentioned in the Sam chapter, the snow knight is mentioned here. And it's just, there's not a whole lot to say about it here because she starts building the snowman. And it's, it says more about Sam's chapter, I think, than it does here. But she takes the, she starts with this and then pivots to making snow Winterfell. So that's kind of cool. Lysa mentions that she blurted out her pregnancy to her father as she's blurting out the stuff about John Aaron. <laughs> yeah. And that's, too sad because that's the blurting out the pregnancy about her to her father is part of what maybe enabled him to force her to have an abortion. If they had waited, it might've been too late. And then the kid would have come to term because it would have been too late for Tansy to do its job. New Rock 44 follows up the cuckoo's nest. One flew over the cuckoo's nest, adding to the notion that it's a, <laughs> a bit of a, uh, isolation spot for people losing their minds. Yeah, that works. That works. <laughs> the veil, the, the birds flying high. Mm -hmm. High as honor. High as crazy. I don't know. <laughs> Stefan B says, not only is that Sansa's positive memory of snow and winter here, it's one of the few positive descriptions of snow and winter in the entire series for any reason. And that is telling. That's a, a good note to point to. Archmaester Rennie points out the difference in types of snows. There's a little emphasis that we may have missed that snow, because it's Westeros and it has so many types and length, long, uh, long periods of snowing, that there's summer snows, there's autumn snows, etc. It's like Eskimos. Yeah, they have so many words for snow. Good point, yeah. Just like the children of the forest have so many words for green. <laughs> it's like green? That's, that's too generic. That doesn't do it any good. Um, so... These are autumn snows that we're seeing here, whereas the direwolves were found in the so-called summer snows. Stefan B. points out that Lysa and Littlefinger both make these weird projecting uh, mistakes with regards to Sansa 
and being stuck in the past. That's a really good way to put it. They both project mostly things about Catelyn, but also things about uh, Catelyn adjacent topics like their father, Hoster, and things like that. But yeah, they both are looking at her as her mother. And it's strange. These projections and being stuck in the past is something that Lysa and Littlefinger have in common. And it's part of why Littlefinger is able to manipulate her is because he really is on the same wavelength without so much of the instability. Tregal points out how cruel George is recurringly to bards. <laughs> it's like there aren't any, there aren't very many good musicians who are like friendly or positive or, and the ones who are at least decent, bad things happen to them like Mance Raider, maybe <laughs> Marillion. Is this a t- horrible guy? That Think about what happens to the blue bard in the next book. It's good Lord. Yeah. And then being a singer in George R. R. Martin's world doesn't work out so great. Stephanie the Peerless from a woman's perspective, wants to note how mournful it is that Sansa's first kiss was Littlefinger. Like, oh man, you're right. I never thought about that. Dang it. (laughs) At least least she thinks it's Sandor. That's true. Maybe that's part of the reason for that false memory, even though she had the false memory before she ever kissed Littlefinger. (laughs) She was was setting it up. (laughs) So good. good. We'll we'll let her keep that false memory because yeah. And in setting up Sansa's arc for her next book, not only have we mentioned a lot of the politics, a lot of those different veil houses that Littlefinger is going to be inducing and bribing and or working against in various ways, we also have the mention, the brief mention of Miranda Royce, who Sansa's going to have some interesting conversations with as someone who may have figured out who Sansa is. Because she very peculiarly mentions Jon Snow, <laughs> and then Sansa's answer may indicate she knows Jon a little better than this random veil bastard daughter of Littlefinger should know Jon Snow. So something to look forward to. Excited for her feast chapters. There's not a lot of them, but they're long and important. And now, the last chapter of a Storm of Swords, the epilogue, the first ever epilogue in A Song of Ice and Fire, the day they hanged Merritt Frey, a.k.a. the gang meets Lady Stoneheart. Besides being that first epilogue, it's one of the legitimate greatest surprises of the series because when I say great surprises, in part I mean almost nothing telling us that this is coming. There's the slightest hint of it only. It's an even bigger surprise probably because it's still open-ended. We still don't know where this all is going. And that adds to the mystery and interest in this chapter. Not only is it the first uh, epilogue, but it's the first member of the nobility to be in a prologue epilogue chapter. Kevin Lannister will be the next, but he's the only other one. We're so recently reminded of a lot of Catelyn-adjacent topics. It's so sneaky, the setup for this chapter by all these oblique mentions of Catelyn in completely other context, because why would you be thinking of her coming back to life? That's random. So there's a lot of reason to think of her, but no reason to see this coming. And well, it happens. It's such a fittingly chosen location described here in the first line. The road up to Old Stones went twice around the hill before reaching the summit. This is, of course, the place where Rob and Catelyn had their argument about his will. Greywin hopped up on the tomb then, and here Merritt Frey tells Thomas Evans to stop sitting on that very same tomb. This is a rather stark uh, Frey hypocrisy. 
Isn't it a man who participates in the Red Wedding is lecturing people about desecrating a king's tomb? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Do you recall what was done with Rob's body? Speaking of desecrations, what about Catelyn's body? It was meant to mock Tully funeral customs, they say. Hmm, yeah, not starting off so well, Merritt Frey. Something that packs an extra punch this time around, too, on a reread is the very ominous singing of Jenny's song. Now, this would be ominous on its own. Rob remembered there was a song about Jenny when he and Catelyn were last here not that long ago in the book. So it's actually a much deeper hint to the presence of Lady Stoneheart. Well done to you if you caught that. But having a full song version exist out in the world, a popular viral hit that's beautifully done, definitely to me at least adds something to the scene because now when I see, hear or read those lyrics, I'm hearing the song in my head too. And that definitely wasn't happening the last time I read this chapter. So that's a boost that just, I didn't see that coming. And I was like, oh yeah. Nice. I got a theme song. I got music. I got musical background going while I'm reading. It's accompaniment that's rather perfect, but so ominous and, and dark. Merritt Frey, though, what a utterly pathetic man living a pathetic life. Virtually every task given to him has resulted in failure, either through lack of talent or just bad luck. I mean, let's be fair here. A lot of it is just really bad luck. He was given a golden opportunity to make a name for himself against the Kingswood Brotherhood. Alongside Jamie Lannister, Arthur Dane, Barristan the Bold, there's a lot of big names, but bad luck. Got this permanent head wound that makes him feel like, I suppose, constant migraines is a close enough reference, if not right on the nose. He had the physical capabilities of being a knight. He was a big dude. Second largest fray. Only Hostine was bigger. And Hostine is the best fighting fray we know of that we've seen probably. He's not great in other ways, but he can fight. So permanent brain damage is what he gets, whereas Hostine is leading troops in the, Okay, well, Hostine's probably about to die up there too, so maybe it's not the best comparison. But all the frays are at risk these days thanks to the actions of some of them, lots of them. And then he manages to win the hand of a dairy when the dairies were really high in royal favor and then just this is part of the bad luck. They lose half their lands, most of their wealth, almost all their power within two years of that marriage. So it looked like a, a great thing for him. And then that fell apart. He's his uh, son that he has a son comes out like a bully. It's not a good kid. He can't be proud of him. His daughters are you know, he can love them, but their traits are the kind that get mocked by Westerosi society. And, well, that's not good for him by extension. When Lothar Frey finally decided to put Merritt's one talent to use, his excessive drinking, he couldn't even do that well. Uh, Great John killed people and, and maimed other people. And I, this is something, despite my obsession with wordplay, I never noticed because it's Merritt, like Merritt-based, you know, like, and he's so much the opposite of that concept. He gives us some nice groundwork for humans to get their revenge on the phrase as well. Thinking through a lot of fray business is useful to us. Although, to be fair, a lot of it we brought up ahead of time in advance of this chapter because we needed it to help explain the Red Wedding. It just makes things make more sense. So we're, that's how we roll in this reread. A lot of times this detail we bring up ahead of time. But it's important here, too. We don't have to rehash all of it, but the stuff that's relevant will go through. Merritt is partially motivated by Peter Pimple being fairly high up in the line of succession. So he's like, well, makes sense to get in good with this guy. 
Now, if you don't recall who Peter Pimple is, he's the one who was thrown from his horse when Grey Wind showed up. <laughs> and because Grey Wind was angry about the oncoming Red Wedding. <laughs> so, whoops, you yeah. We spoke back in Catelyn's later chapters about Lothar being all sweet and courtesy and negotiation and how we knew that all to be false on reread thanks to this very chapter. Thanks for that. Walder Frey was signing off on the whole thing, but yeah, Lothar was the one that made it happen. He was the planner. But also, he added all these cruelties, just for cruelty's sake. That's something that wasn't as clear before. Just adding in insults and meanness to the whole spectacle rather than just getting the job done. So we talked about the snow in the Eerie and how that's a little ominous, even though Sansa looks on it positively. There's snow here at Old Stones. This is further south and a much lower altitude. So that's a big deal. And it says a lot about how this book was left. When people were finishing it, you're like, whoa, snow is coming on. And it's like, well, that's going to be starting to happen in the next book. And it does. There's a good bit of snowfall in A Feast for Crows. So we'll be talking about that then. A good take from Nina here. She doesn't think it's coincidence that the chapter opens with this snow because there is a little supernatural homage or at least presence going here. Besides this Lady Stoneheart, the weather recalls how Stark, rulers of Winterfell and kings of winter, whose king and lady and many vassals were slain at the Red Wedding. is a little bit of nature's revenge or at least nature's anger bubbling up around here. It's, it's a backdrop to the scene, building up to Catelyn's rise. Even though Catelyn is not rising because of the old gods, it still calls to mind the deeds that she wants vengeance for, deeds that do apply to the old gods since there was a violation of guest right and a murder of a king that arguably was chosen by the old gods because that is how monarchy works, works in quotes, if you're the king, it's because the gods chose you. That's supposed to be the, uh, the explanation for why people become king in the first place. That is how mon monarchy tends to be viewed in the real world, or at least framed. And that's certainly how the rulers want people to see it. I was chosen by God, so that's it. No, you can't argue against that. And of course, the natural rebellion of the weather is complemented at the end of the chapter by this super is more overtly supernatural rising of Lady Stoneheart. Like maybe the weather is already a little supernatural, but this definitely is. For so great a crime against humanity, against rights, against just against the gods, this magical universe has deemed it proper to craft an embodiment of vengeance. And this is what she looks like. It is frightening. Fittingly, Merritt and Peter hanged at Old Stones, the seat of the last first men, old gods worshiping dynasty of the Riverlands. It is very perfect that the old gods are having their due, even though it's been so long, perhaps, that they've been owed this due. Because it's not just the Red Wedding, it's the destruction of, as Nina puts it, this last first men, old gods worshiping dynasty of the Riverlands, which was Old Stones. House Mud, to be clear. Joe Buckley with a good take here. For the first time reader, it's confusing what's going on and why this is happening. Why is Lady Stoneheart rising? Why are we reliving this horror through the eyes of a victor? Why are we seeing Merritt Frey? Uh, wh what's the deal with this kind of boring, plain, pathetic man? It's all part of the plan. This boring, pathetic man 
is setting the tone of the chapter so that Lady Stoneheart's rise is all the more shocking. And it freaking works. So the truth about Barrick's final death, though, that's interesting. She, Merritt says, which one of you is Barrick? And they're like, oh, it's, you know, it's my turn to be Barrick today. And they're like, oh, Barrick's elsewhere. Barrick is gone. There is no more Barrick. So I'm curious why they say that here. I wonder why they indicate that he's not. It's, it's not like George changed his mind, I don't think. But it is slightly possible that he had, he had envisioned both Barrick and Stoneheart walking around, but I really don't think so. But it's confusing to people. It confuses the nobility, as we mentioned earlier in the book, and small folk really need to rally behind this, this idol. People aren't going to voluntarily follow Lady Stoneheart because of who she is, but they may approve of the killing of Freys and perhaps Lannisters and these other people who violated these basic tenets of human decency to such an overwhelming degree, just, just with so much blood. Here's a, a look at what Lady Stoneheart actually, well, looks like. Let's take the quote from Merritt's point of view. It's, it's pretty terrifying, isn't it? Beneath her ravaged scalp, her face was shredded skin and black blood where she had raked herself with her nails. But her eyes were the most terrible thing. Her eyes saw him and they hated. She don't speak, said the big man in the yellow cloak. You bloody bastards cut her throat too deep for that. But she remembers. But she remembers. Yes, it's a great final line from uh, Lem reminding us that, yes, she remembers because it's a personal thing, but also she remembers because it's a thing that everyone should be upset about. It's the kind of thing that the realm should not allow to be forgotten. It should not, that type of deed should not stand, but to her, it's more personal than anyone else. Joe agrees. This is perhaps the biggest surprise in the entire series. It's certainly if you frame it in terms of how out of nowhere it seems, the only other perhaps contender is Eddard's death because that is kind of, I mean, most of us were probably expected him to get out of it somehow or to go to the wall or something like that. Well, going to the wall is getting out of it in a way. So that's a good counterexample for something that's just, you didn't expect it to actually happen. But that's something you expected him to get out of. You see the situation unfolding and expect it to go a different way. This is a chapter unfolding. You have no idea what's coming. You're like, okay, ransom, brotherhood without banners. What's this all about? There's no, oh, this is about to be one thing. It turns into something else. This is, it's about to be one thing and you don't know what it's about. And it turns into something, holy crap. <laughs> it's really, really cool. And I, I'm still amazed at how good this surprise rings out, even though I read this book for the first time of almost 20 years ago. And it's filled with parallels to these other important deaths that have come just so close to it. Tyrion killing Tywin's a shock, but you can see the buildup to it. You can see why. You can see Tyrion's long simmering hatred, frustration, anger with his father and all that. That's no surprise. That's not out of nowhere. John becoming Lord Commander, a bit of a surprise maybe, but John's leadership skills and his abilities and everything, that's, yeah, it fits. But Catelyn Stark rising from the dead many, many chapters after she's fallen with Rob already dead and what? It's just... It's amazing. <laughs> it's just so surprising. I could go on for a while about this, but I think you all understand where I'm coming from. And there's other detail here too that's important that this is why we need to not just get caught up in the amazingness of it is 
Well, where are the rest of the Brotherhood without banners? As we're going to see, the Brotherhood is not what it was because this change in leadership is also a change in ideals. And this change in ideals is not okay with a lot of the brothers. Edric Dane leaves, Angai the Archer leaves. Why isn't Gendry here? We know Gendry joined. Well, Gendry's back at the inn doing other stuff. He's not traveling around in the murder band. So... It seems there's some agency within the ranks of the Brotherhood, but some of them are just going right along with it. Some of the worst kind, not, maybe not the worst, but some of the ones who were most violent, like Jack B. Lucky is here, and he's one of the ones that had some uh, dark lines earlier. And of course, Lem Lemon Cloak has always been a little bit tilted towards being violent towards traitors and bad types and, and less, a little bit less about justice. And of course... This is even less and less about justice the longer Stoneheart goes on because, well, killing Merritt, yeah, that feels like justice. But then when Podrick and Brienne are hanged, it's like, well, that's not justice, but it's also a misunderstanding. And well, it's going to be a lot of misunderstandings out there when you've got the walking dead coming around. So (laughs) it's a great thing for us to be looking at when we get to Brienne's feast chapters and a little bit with Jamie's as well. Another thing about the lulling here that one last note about that is just so much backstory on the phrase. You know that this backstory often goes somewhere and it does, but it just goes into a place that we just didn't see coming. Fully fleshed out character that just dies. But that's how George rolls. He doesn't want to, this death isn't going to mean as much if we don't get to know Merritt, even though we don't get to know him very long. Nina writes that Merritt is a man who knows just how useless he is within a house with far, far too many heirs, not high on the succession of House Frey at all. 41st in the line of succession, it appears he is. And even if that's off by a few, that's crazy how far down the line of succession he is. It's crazy that the line of succession goes that far. I mean, if you were to draw the Stark line of succession, what would it be? Like five people? If we were to add some cousins who George say are out there somewhere unnamed, what does that add? A few more? (laughs) We're getting nowhere near 41 though, folks. George does a good job, though, in his in this backstory. You don't like him. You know, he's not like some great murderer. He's not like overly violent or doesn't, as far as we know, he hasn't hit women or something like that. I mean, maybe he has. It's just not brought up. I mean, he is an alcoholic, so you never know. But the headaches, the reason he, he is an alcoholic is because of the headaches. And that's a one legitimately powerfully sympathetic trait because a lot of people out there have headaches, debilitating or otherwise. Now, probably none of you have them because you were hit by a mace, but it's the same point. The description of him lying alone in a dark room with a wet cloth over his eyes is a deeply humanizing moment amongst a bunch of moments that you can't help but just loathe the guy. It's, yeah, it doesn't make him sympathetic, but it's a sympathetic trait. So Merritt, the least of the phrase shows what divine magical punishment the curse upon House Frey will take. In his very dismissibility, Merritt can be Stoneheart's first sacrifice. Less important in his own dying than in setting up what Stoneheart means for the future of House Frey. It shows this is like the gauntlet is thrown down. Because as Thomas Evans notes, they're not going to fall for this trick again. We, we're, we're not going to bother asking for a ransom next time because they're not going <laughs> to fall for it if we murdered the last two. And indeed, they proceed to start murdering more phrase from here. So a few more get hanged in a feast for crows. Hmm. One person says, AT Gaming says Sansa's first kiss might have been Jane Poole. Okay. 
Fair point. Yeah, might have been. Um, first kiss with a man then, I guess, is what we should have said, but that's a good point. Leah Rubenfeld says, can you go over where all the Frey heirs are now? No, I would have to prepare that. <laughs> but we we do have a lot of it already done. We have a Frey episode we done all, we, we done, we did a long time ago that you should still be able to find. If not, we can email you a copy of it. It might be one of the ones I took down because it's so old. But this hasn't really changed in the interim, even though this episode is like six years old. We did a full breakdown of the phrase. I think we also did a where are they now for a lot of the phrase. That's available for patrons. We get the description of what happened to the great Sean. Yes, we do. We kind of went over it already in the last chapter, just talking about how he's still out there and he's a hostage, but it's it's much more specific here and how he just, what a boss. Like you could not stop this man. When they had him in chains, he still was biting people. I mean, this is a guy that just keeps on fighting and he's alive. Imagine him standing beside Jon Snow instead of standing beside Rob Stark. I mean, the show didn't, couldn't, couldn't have possibly given us that because the actor left prematurely. So we never got to see the full Great John on, in, in the show. So the books is it's kind of an open-ended thing. Imagine Great John saying the kind of things he said about Rob, about how he's just his number one guy. I'm his right-hand man. I'll say I'll, I'm, I'm his number one champion, pumping him up, saying all the right things. That could happen with John. I mean, remember that, that line that Tormund drops in, in the show about how John did this, John did that, John did this. He did all these amazing, brave things. I could picture Great John saying those things instead of Tormund. I mean, I could definitely picture Tormund saying them. <laughs> it would fit for either of them. But exploring the possible options for Great John later, if he gets out of prison and is able to rejoin the cause, what a windfall that's going to be, because this is a very charismatic leader who's also a great warrior, assuming he still ha- is able to do all that after his long stint in prison. Rafaela Bangarzon says, yes, the headache, I felt so bad for him, even though he's afraid. That was a Facebook comment. And yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, George manages to do that so well. He's like all this description of why we don't want to like this guy, but there's one thing that you can really sympathize with. John Hagee says so much of this page is uh, uh, so much of the page is devoted to Frey internal politics, meaning inside some things that, that he's thinking about. Novellas could be written within House Frey. The Freys must constantly think about their position relative to the others. That's a great point. Like talking about perspective, what it's like to be a Frey when you're 35th or 30th or 25th on the line of succession. Tomorrow you're 24th, tomorrow you're 27th. I mean, that's bizarre. It's a, it would be a constant thing on your mind that even other noble houses wouldn't have because they just don't have this pure scale of family. So good take, John. Very good. Quote, uh, take from Anthony De Palma. I remember reading those last words. I calmly closed the book, took a deep breath, got in my car, drove maybe 30 miles over the speed limit to buy a feast for crows. After reading that epilogue and feeling whatever excitement I felt, I decided I wanted to be a storyteller myself, started working on my own novel shortly after that. Awesome, Anthony. I'm glad to hear that. I picked your quote, your comment from Facebook because it does summarize so thoroughly and emphatically the level of surprise and excitement this epilogue gave to people when they read it for the first time. And some of that excitement still exists or at least can be recalled by going through it again. At least I hope we were able to do that with our coverage today. And I look forward to doing that with the next two books and beyond. As I've been saying, the big part of the reason for Valar Reredis is to prepare us for the Winds of Winter. You know, we got the show mixing up our canon giving us ideas, making us, contributing to us, forgetting certain book plot lines that weren't on the show. 
We got things that have been re-examined and reconsidered as time has passed. New theories are out there. We've reconsidered a lot. So Feast for Crows, Dance with Dragons is going to be really fun. But part of the point is to make sure when you do read The Wind's a Winner, you're on top of it. You've got everything as, as good as it can be in your mind. You're not going to miss details too much. You're going to know what some of these sneaky references are. If George writes Child Snow Knight, you're not going to read past that. You're going to be like, Child Snow Knight, you say. So there you go. That is a goal we have for Valerie Reedus. And this is also me working out a new intro because with each book, I change the Valerie Reedus intro. So I think I'm going to use some of what I just said for that. We'll see how that comes out. Thank you, everyone, for coming to this episode, this live stream. If you watched it live or if you were listening afterwards, thank you very much. My sincere thanks and appreciation. After all, we couldn't do this without you guys. We've just finished a third book, so it feels like a good milestone to make sure these words are stated, said again, to make sure you all know where we're coming from and how thankful we are. Really looking forward to the rest. Looks like a little super chat snuck in here at the end, so let me jump to that real quick. Sir Roland de Stark says, after the phrase get wasted for their betrayal, do you think Little Walder and Big Walder always playing Lord of the Crossing and talking about succession foreshadow Little Walder ending up as Lord? Now he, now that's a dude really far down the line of succession, but yeah, I could see it happening because so many phrases are going to die. I mean, if the if the show gave us any clue at all, and I don't think it would happen like that, but if the point is carried over, it's the same relative thing. Yeah, a lot of phrases will die. And that could mean Little Wilder rises. <laughs> so yeah, I do agree with that possibility. It might be the point. However, he might just die up there in the North amongst all that stuff. We shall see one of the things for us to be paying attention to because those Walders will be part of A Dance with Dragons. We won't see them for a little while, but they'll be coming back before the wind's a winner, most likely. So yeah, next week, Sunday, no chapters. There's no next time to describe in terms of chapter titles, but we will have our guests on. That's going to be uh, Lady Gwyn, Joe Buckley, and Nina. So the two, our two main contributors, plus our regular recurring friend slash compatriot, Lady Gwyn, who we have done more live streams with than anyone else, I would guess. I haven't counted, but it seems like it has to be. <laughs> and also this Thursday... This Thursday, which is, what's the date on the that? 14th. The 14th. Check out John Webster's channel. Just look up John Webster on YouTube. We, you can probably come to our Facebook group. We should, we'll share a link there. And she's going to be talking about, Ashea is going to be joining him as a guest to talk about the Dark Crystal. Yeah, specifically the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, the TV, the TV series, but we'll be touching on, obviously, the movie and the books. Yes, <laughs> you will. Very good. <laughs> cool. So check, it, check out that if you're a fan of Dark Crystal. Ashea knows it really well, and I bet John Webster does too. Oh, yeah. And an uh, right now, Here Be Dragons, Stephen Stark's uh, stream is going on. So move on over there. He's interviewing Betsy, a.k.a. his mother. Yeah, Mother's Day. Perfect, right? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> oh, no. Another super chat. We got another oh, you one. Go, oh, no. Yeah, oh, no. Damn it. <laughs> Natalie Smith, thank you very much, Natalie, for the super chat. The loneliness has been really getting to me the past few days and listening to your live streams really helps. Thanks for that. all that. Y'all do. P.S. Like the video. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, I mean, it's tough out there, right? Or in in there, <laughs> stuck at home. So I don't want to act like we're some great community service helping people like that. But I do appreciate that 
it has that effect. I mean, we would be doing this anyway. But thank you for saying that. Thank you for pointing out that we're helping in that regard too. Uh, it means a lot. And yeah, please like the video. <laughs> that helps too. <laughs> that helps other people notice it. In this episode, we covered 160 or 71 minutes and 14 seconds. Last week, it was 163 minutes and 25 seconds. The chapters kind of even out a little bit in terms of their length. That's really the case in Feast for Crows. It was a lot easier to make the schedule uh, even week to week in terms of length. This episode went longer than usual, but yeah, so much ending stuff. That's the way it is. There's no progress bar this time. It's 2,854 minutes, 27 seconds of A Storm of Swords, and we have done it. Check the video length compared to the podcast length to see how much got edited out. I would guess it's going to be 10 to 15 minutes. That's usually what happens. We mentioned a few episodes in this one. We try to tell you what episodes get mentioned as we're ending. We mentioned our Blood Raven episodes, which are tied to the Blackfire Rebellion series and not. Two of them are tied to the Blackfire Rebellion series because they were during his political life and that had so much to do with the Blackfires. But another one called the Three-Eyed Blood Raven is separate from his Black, the Blackfire series, kind of a standalone, but covers the last part of his life. We also talked about our Summer Hall episodes, which seems to happen almost every episode. <laughs> Summer Hall looms large so very often. And our House Frey episode, which again... If you send us, uh, if you can't find it out there, it's one of our oldest and th thus a little difficult. Let us know and we'll help you out with that. Ashay is the best. She does so much all at once during these streams, as well as offline. As she mentioned, she's editing one of our videos right now, and it's a new style video for us. My mug doesn't appear at all. Partly because of quarantine and my, I couldn't get a haircut and... <laughs> Look at my hand. It's covered in poison, poison ivy. ivy. I yeah, and his eye was swollen up. Yeah. Not too bad, but like the whole right side of his body, it's horrifying, honestly. Yeah, my arm. I look at him and I cringe. That's it's like, why I'm it's wearing... like he's the mountain. <laughs> I'm <laughs> more like Victorian on my right arm. Yeah, right there. That's why I'm wearing long sleeves for the first time. And I don't know if I've ever worn a long sleeve shirt for a live stream before, but I'm doing it now because my arm is, is ghastly. So... Yeah, I'll use some of the super worn, chat money on Calamine. You've worn your little sweat, your your little sweater. Oh, have I? Yeah. Okay, I guess I'm wrong then. <laughs> but not a shirt. Not yeah, not a, and not for this reason certainly. <laughs> so thanks, thanks again to Joe Buckley and Nina Friel for their valuable contributions. Make sure to check out Joe's podcast, The Isle of Faces, and Nina's blog, Good Queen Alley, on Tumblr. Uh, thank you very much to History of Westeros mods who every week post all of our chapters and lead the discussions with wonderful art and quotes to help make the episodes even better. Flick, Facebook, Slack, and Discord are our main options for interacting with the reread and with History of Westeros in general and the History of Westeros group uh, sub-fandom that we have here, our sub-community. All those places are great ways to uh, join the conversation and the community. Thanks to Claradox. .de, that's Michael Klarfeld's site. Thank you to Kevin McLeod. Thank you to Joey Townsend. Thank you to Jesse Kowal. Thank you to Ben Janier. 
Um, so Engineer Stark? I could call him that. <laughs> oh, that one's pretty good. I also wanted to take a quick moment to mention Michael Klarfeld, Claradox. He's been doing things other than A Song of Ice and Fire maps, if you haven't been paying attention. He's done something for The Witcher. What is the most recent one? Magic the Gathering or something? Corvain? Oh, I didn't even see that one. It was Wizards of the Coast, maybe. I don't know what that oh, one was. What's cool. Corvain from? I don't know. <laughs> I, it was something I don't see, but it was another fantasy one. Uh, his, his Witcher map is incredible because the Witcher map, the Witcher D&D. fandom lacks good maps. And he his is prob- already probably it's the best D&D. one. It's D&D. D&D? World of Eberron. Either way, oh, I guess oh. Wizards of the Coast, yeah, publishes it too. I associate Wizards of the Coast like extremely strongly with Magic the Gathering. Which you should. That is That was their first product. Okay, thanks. I just, <laughs> living in this house where people play magic, I have seen it many times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Hasbro bought Wizards of the Coast. But yeah, if you want to see more of uh, Michael's maps, you can go to his website, like we mentioned, claredox.de. Yeah. And last but not least, thank you to all our patrons. You can go to historyofwesteros.com slash... That's not it at all. You can go to patreon.com slash historyofwesteros to find the pledge level that's right for you and support us on our journey to continue bringing you the best content we possibly can. I'm excited for the next book. See you next week with the Storm of Swords wrap-up with our guests. And onward, Valar Reredus. 